Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. 57? Holy cow, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, the time's uh, going by uh, in the podcast, <laughs> just like it does in everything else. 57. That's Mike over there, realizing... Yeah, this is Mike. ...the edge, and this is Russ over here on this microphone, yeah. your loyal hosts. And uh, yeah, we've uh, keeping up a steady roll this year so far. Yeah, looking good so far. Into uh, third of the year has passed. It's now um, April, and the cherry blossoms have come out here in Kyoto and all over Japan. And we've been really enjoying that. The weather's been pretty nice, too. Although today was cloudy. It didn't really rain, though, which was good. Yeah, just a few sprinkles. Yesterday, I was out uh, hiking, and uh, I spent the, I don't know, last portion of the hike coming through this huge cedar forest. And, you know, I don't normally have allergies or anything, but the pollen was so thick, you could taste it. And I can still taste it. And I've got a nose full of it. It's still so funny. Yeah. Sneeze or wheeze or something tonight. I apologize for that uh, ahead of time. But it was worth it to be out in the nice weather. I, I actually don't hike. I, I get invited to go hiking often, but I huh. I don't want to go because the, the thought... I, I'm not really too crazy about the woods. Like, I'd prefer to be by the sea or something like that on the beach. But um, the thought of just being, like, in the woods far away from people with, you know, and being with the same people for three hours is just horrifying to me. I, I just, I can't, I can't spend three hours with anybody. You know? That's, <laughs> you know, it's like the Sopranos episodes when they go down to the, uh, Pine bears. <laughs> see, it's not something I can't do that. I'm just not. You I know, see. When, when I when I think about all this stuff about um, how far away we've gotten from like a, a natural way of life and stuff like uh -huh. that, I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'm Good. all for oh, it. Okay. Although I could do without uh, a lot of this um these uh, digital incursions into our lives. But right. uh, aside from that, you know, yeah. I like civilization. I hope right. it uh, continues. And brings us all this music. Yeah, we can't have adult music without a civilization. So Not without all these digital technologies. But I like to break yeah. free from for a while and get back into nature and the woods. No, me too, but just not in the woods. I don't no, know. No. There are animals okay. there. <laughs> and then there are other people. Uh. <laughs> That's the worst, yeah. Even when you go yeah. in the mountains, you can't get away from the people. But Yeah, he said they're still there. What are you going to do? Oh. All right. All right. Well... Uh, for any new listeners here, our format is to uh, discuss usually six new recordings, uh, mainly classical music and jazz, although sometimes we get into world music and other frontiers each week. And uh, I'd like to also let you know that for the music we'll discuss, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music in the episode description. Uh, you want to check out any of the recordings. Uh, you'll also find a link to the full episode playlist all in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. Check it out if you haven't heard of Deezer. It's CD quality music, a nice catalog, especially for jazz and classical music. You can find us there under the username Adult Music Podcast. You can also follow the podcast there as well as check out any of the recordings. Now, if you don't see the full description or the links aren't active on whatever platform or app you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and there you'll find all the active links for all of our episodes uh, going way back to last year. If you do enjoy way the podcast- Way back, right? To last way year. back That's to so last long. year. 
so so long ago. Although it seems that way now. It seems that way. Yeah. If you do enjoy the podcast, uh, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Take a moment, give us a ranking or write a review. That also helps us get into the recommended browsing lists and that helps us get new listeners, which always makes us happy. Yeah, more new listeners, please. Yeah. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Yeah, tell a friend. Yeah. That's the best uh, word of mouth. Instead of going hiking, <laughs> yeah, listen to our podcast. Although you could listen to it while you're hiking, although that might be dangerous. See, on the beach, it wouldn't be dangerous. You'd be okay. I think we get most of our new listeners uh, from searches for different styles of music or different artists uh, rather than the browsing categories. Because I don't think anyone really goes into music commentary. Right. I, I want to hear guys talk about music. but maybe, maybe we should change our search criteria instead of calling yeah, it music Apple commentary. Sort we should of, just call it something else. Apple sort of has etched those categories into not so you know, flexible kinds of things. Right. But. Another odd thing about our podcast, because when I listen to podcasts, I always listen to the most recent one. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that most of our listeners sort of, they'll download episodes from long ago. And I'm kind of wondering why. Are they like picking up, uh, is it, it's just, just a recording we did long ago and they're just finally catching up with well, it now? That's I don't know. why I think we get a lot mm -hmm. of listeners based on search searching yeah. for other albums because okay. like this week I noticed there was one day we had five downloads of one episode from like last June and I thought mm. why the sudden you know interest in that so I think it's somebody who is looking for a certain artist or you know something had come up related to that yeah, composer yeah. something like that that's all good mm. uh, however anyone finds that's us we hope you keep yeah. listening but I feel like we're better now than we were then you know so yeah. when, <laughs> when people hear the new ones yeah and even if you get uh tired out from listening to us go on and on about the recordings you should come just to check out our lists every week because uh i think you won't find uh this kind of musical all in one place certainly but uh hmm. yeah i uh we both spend a lot of time deciding what uh you know is worth talking about so uh, do check yeah, out our because playlists. there's a, yeah. because there's a lot of music and we really want to talk about all of it and maybe one day we will if you make us uh you yeah. know, um, pros at this. We might do it every day, you know, though I think every day might be too much for me. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know, maybe three times a week. That'd be okay. As much as I like Deezer's catalog and I like yeah. uh, the sound quality uh, and everything else, man, their new recommendations really are horrible. <laughs> They're way behind <laughs> and, they, and they don't have much they, variety. They, the world needs us. They just don't know it, you know, because they, they do recommend horrible things. And I, I think I don't know Deezer why. should appoint us as their classical and jazz list curators and, you know, sort of promoters for all the music that they uh, get on there. Yeah, I think a few classical rec record labels should uh, give us some uh, booklets to write to because yeah. some of these are really horrible. Yeah. I think we could write a good booklet note. You know. yeah. What's even more funny is some of uh, the promotional emails we get, uh, you know, saying, yeah. you know, please talk about this recording because <laughs> the, the flowery because, language. Because that, no one uh, else will. Yeah, some of those <laughs> things are described in his, uh, I wonder, you know, yeah. you, you obviously paid someone <laughs> to write this. It's right, not, right. It's not uh, matching the reality of the recording. Anyway, there's lots of funny stuff happening, but the music yeah, is serious and uh, you're guaranteed to find something interesting every week and get some variety. Uh, also, you can now find us on Facebook. Uh, so look us up there. We've got a page 
100 Adult Music Podcast. You can leave a comment or a message there. And if you want to contact us directly uh, with any comments or questions, you can do that by email as well to Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And before we go any further, we also like to thank, as always, Fast Signs of Staten Island for our lovely logo. Yeah, I hope you like here. it, everybody. Yeah, and <laughs> certainly uh, stands out. Eye-catching neon pattern on that brick wall that's out behind the adult club where we're based. Uh, if you can imagine that. So. Yeah, we now have uh, business cards too with that logo on it. And when when I give them to people, they they almost do a Hollywood double take. They're like, "What what's this podcast about?" I really hope. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I really hope it isn't putting people off because it's a little joke that we want to. You know, do we? You know, because there is music for adults, and I think we need to be adults when we are adults and listen to adult music. I still listen to kids' music too, but uh, you know, I feel like it, the adult music, jazz, classical, keeps me sane in this kind of crazy world because it keeps your brain working. You know, it's kind of it's intellectual, it's emotional too. It gets into emotions that pop music don't get into. You know, That's I can right. get into. Some Are there really any emotions good in places. pop music these days? These days, I don't know, because now even now they have that auto tune and they're hiding behind the emotion behind that. It drives me crazy. I mean, yeah. it's a sound that everybody likes, but nevertheless, it's not like a you know, an electric guitar can sound different, you know, but this auto tune always seems to sound the same. It's that weird robot voice, you know. That they, well, I uh, can guarantee there's no auto tune on any of our recordings tonight. Yeah, and there's no auto tune on us either. Speaking of another guy who there's no auto tune on, we lost um, Gil Scott Heron. This just the other day. The funny, there's a funny thing. We have uh, the name of our podcast because of the. Um, I guess we're going to call it the podcast as I can say it. Okay, we have a Ravel recording on this podcast, and then we have three uh, jazz organ um, releases. So he decided to call the podcast the the Revolution will not be organized. You know. A, play on Gil Scott Heron's very famous track, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, from the late 1960s, I think 1969, I think. Mm. It might have been 1970, 71, I'm not sure. But um, that was earlier in the week, and then the the news that Gil Scott Heron died just came in like yesterday, or today, I can't even remember now. But uh, it was a weird coincidence. We didn't <laughs> we didn't yeah. plan on, I hope you know, not- we, we, didn't, we didn't call the podcast the revolution will not be organized because of Gil Scott Heron's death. He actually died a few days after we came up with that, which is sad. Anyway, yeah, that's not a give pattern him a or something. Yeah. So yeah. I noticed when I, in the band I played with, we, we were starting to like pick some, like, Oh, let's play this song. This is a good song. We can arrange this to match our style and we will work on it. Right. And then that guy happened to die and that oh, happened geez. a couple of times. And I started to think <laughs> this is not a good pattern. <laughs> Um, oh, I want to tell those. Maybe we should call our podcast. Maybe we should call the uh, one episode. Uh, Mike and Russ get rich, and maybe that'll happen. You know? Could happen. I don't know. Maybe one day. But I got to tell you, I almost uh, hit 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 the quasi big time. I'm playing. Last year we um we were downloaded loaded five thousand two hundred seventy five times. I checked, and I'm playing that number in the numbers for lottery here in Japan. And uh, the number, this month, the number 5,279 came up. So three of my digits were correct and in place and just missed by one. I could have had, you know, a nice little jackpot there. But uh, I wound up with uh, nothing. <laughs> anyway. Keep trying. Yeah, keep trying. You know, so I'm going to play that number for the rest of the year. And then, uh, you know, then it's just I'm just going to retire it after when 2023 starts. Hopefully yeah. it'll come in. Get some extra spending money. I got a, I got some uh, 
Dali speakers I want to buy. I recommend them. I have two sets yeah. myself. Yeah, they're excellent. Anyway, since that time, we're over well over 7,000 downloads now, so thank you listeners for that. Mm. And uh, actually, we're in the religious uh, holy season uh, this we are. Now, it's, and that's uh, how we're going to start out the music this week, isn't it? Fifth, fifth Sunday of Lent. And yeah, we actually have a, uh, again, not intentionally, although um, I, w- I was thinking of doing sort of a, a Lent slash, you know, Holy Week slash Easter episode, because there are all these like, every year around this time you get new Bach Passion recordings. And this year there are two that, well, there are probably more <laughs> than two, but there are two that I, that caught my eye. Uh, one of them was... Um, Another a new recording of John Elliot Gardner of the box St. Matthew Passion. He did a really mm-hmm. famous one back in the 80s. And this one is um, recorded in Dolby Atmos. And um, that's a weird kind of surround, you know, that yeah. you need multiple speakers for, and more than five, like I have. And like, there's just no way. I, mean, I can't do this, <laughs> you know. But there is a five five track a five channel one that you, version you can listen to on the Blu-ray disc that comes with the album. So I'm going to be checking that out. Um, wow. I, I, you know, the Dolby apps, it's a little too much because even the 5.1 sound one, it's, it, it gives a little bit more dimension to the uh, recording, but I mean, it's not really all that much different from hearing stereo. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's got a little more depth to it. And, uh, you know, they don't, they, they use the back channels for um, like back of the hall sound, you know, it's just kind of mm-hmm. makes it a little more, not subliminal messages or anything. Yeah, no, what really works in surround <laughs> though is organ recordings are fantastic in surround because if you think about it, you walk into a church. Where is the sound coming from? It's coming from above your head, wherever the pipes are somewhere, and it just right. diffuses throughout the church, and you get that effect. It's really cool, you know. A choral recordings are pretty great too on in surround. Mm. Yeah. Well, where's right, our but, religious uh, experience going to begin today? All right, so we're going to do, uh, instead of Bach, oh, the other ones, there was a St. Matthew Passion, too, with uh, Sabine Deviel singing oh. on it. I can't remember who the, um, so I wanted to hear that. I haven't heard that yet, so I can't really talk well, about it. We've got a little time before Easter, so. Two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks. We'll be do, we'll be recording on Easter Sunday in, in two weeks, oh. too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, re- this week. I have a religious got... jazz recording, too, I could throw in there. Do you so. really? Yeah. That yeah. would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're, I'm going to do the Easter episode. I think it might okay. be a little too much because that's the 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 passions. They're they're all multi disc set. They're out, you know, two or that's three hours long. That's a lot. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, we'll be I don't really want to. Wanna, so. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll you know it's, it'll take a lot of time. Anyway, eh, but I don't know. Maybe not this year. But anyway, I did manage to get this recording of uh, Giovanni Battista Pergolesi's Stabat Mater. Um, um, the mother standing by the cross. So it's about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, it's it's a really famous work. It was um, written in the last year of his life. Pedagolesi is rather famous for having died um, at a very young age. I think he was only like 25 or 26, maybe even 27, like Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> but he was one of these people who, uh, he, he died ridiculously young uh, from... I guess some disease that he got from drinking too much. Um, oh. so, but Robert Greenberg, um, in one of his uh, video series for the teaching for the great courses mentions, um, he didn't, he didn't know the name of the story, but there's a short story about this, uh, science group of scientists who, um, come up with a way to, um, revive like the dead or something like that. Or, or mm. like they get, they, they, I don't know what it is. They've revived the dead or they kind of, 
can pro- prolong someone a dead person's life, kind of add years to their life, something like that. And they decide to um um they they decide to kind of try it out on maybe a famous person and uh the person they choose is uh, Pergolesi in the story oh. and he uh so they bring him back to life and he immediately starts uh drinking and carousing again and dies again so, in, the, <laughs> in the story which is probably what would happen so i guess uh you know our wishes that these people had lived longer um probably wouldn't have panned out very well although Can't escape your oh, fate yeah mozart's might have but Pergolesi, this is someone who a longer life would have probably benefited us all because he was a great composer. Uh, he sounds very Mozartian at times because he's he's really the bridge between the Baroque era and the classical era. He's already writing in these classical styles and, he, and he's coming up with this. And if he had lived into his 30s and 40s, you know, who knows what he would have come up with. He lived, uh, he died 20 years before Mozart was even born. So uh, he, he might have been well on his way to... Um, Achieving some of the things that Haydn achieved too. I mean, he was he was a great composer uh, at his age. And um, the Stabat Mater that we uh, hear here was a big um, model for a lot of composers about how to compose um, mm-hmm. religious music and things like this. Okay, we also hear on this uh, a work by Haydn. Kind of interestingly enough, uh, a Symphony Number no. Forty Nine in F Minor, La Passione, um, which means passion, but doesn't have anything to do with uh, Jesus's passion, I don't think. But uh, oh, uh, it did. Okay, let me see. Yeah, uh, it didn't. I'll I'll explain where that comes from when I get there. Anyway, the artists are one of our favorites, Jodie Devos, um, the soprano, and we heard her on the uh, the sweaters album from last year. She was wearing a yellow oh, yeah. sweater on the cover. Turtlenecks, yeah. Turtlenecks. She was a turtleneck. Yeah. Uh, we also get Adèle Charvet, mezzo-soprano, the Maîtrise de Radio France, which is a young people's chorus, Le Concert de la Loge, conducted by Julien Chauvin, violin and director, and this is on the Alpha label. Okay. Pergolesi's Stabat Mater um, has, there are many um, arrangements of this. Even Bach made an arrangement of it. The original one is for... Um, let me see, two two singers, soprano, contralto, and string orchestra with organ accompaniment, and that's it. Um, but in this one, we get an arrangement that has a chorus in it, too, which is rather yeah. nice, actually. Mm. I uh, rather like this. This was the first um, time I've ever heard this arrangement. So this um, particular um, version was published in 1769. That's... Uh, 33 years after uh, Pedagolesi's death. So he's, his music was still um, being heard. Now, this is unusual, by the way, because um, until the 19th century, um, music was um, disposable. So you think about the great works of Bach. I mean, they were just heard in church, and that was it. They were never heard again. He would reuse a lot of his music for other works. Um, the Christmas Oratorio is famously uh, lifted from a lot of his um, earlier cantatas. Uh, but this this work actually made the rounds. It it, it stuck around, and that's a, that just goes to show you what high esteem it was held in. Um, one of the uh, reasons for it sticking around is that the Concert Spirituel in Paris um, performed it throughout the 1700s. Now, what they were the Concert Spirituel was um it was an orchestral group that put on concerts for. The public. Now, this is, in other words, they did what happens today. 
right? If you go to your local city, your city's um, symphony orchestra, that's what the concert spiritual did. Except that in that day, at that time, no one did that. Uh, composers always performed for like royalty or, you know, some sort of duke had his own orchestra or something like that. And um, this ensemble formed in Paris to um, perform new works and to keep the French public uh, informed on them. Now, again, also remember that uh, we didn't really have pop music. There was popular, you know, like kind of music for dances and stuff, but uh, the music these people listened to was you know, opera, mostly songs, and also this orchestral music, which is considered, I guess, a little more highbrow, but was still very popular. Um, let's see. Uh, Chauvin approached the work with the idea of the chorus playing a key role. Chauvin is Ju Julien Chauvin, remember, is the director or the conductor. Uh, he thought of the chorus playing a key role in the narration of the powerful text, which is about Mary's suffering at seeing Jesus die on the cross. It's a very sad prayer. Um, um, let's see. So this would have been heard in Paris in the mid-18th century, this version. Anyway, it's um, separated here into 13 sections, um, some longer than others. Okay, and it goes through the entire um, Latin prayer. It's all sung in Latin. Okay, now the Stabat Mater, right away, we hear this. And um, I've heard this work quite a few times. And Chauvin here takes a fairly quick tempo. This is really moving. Um, usually it's taken more slowly, so the, the weepiness of the orchestration, the text, it kind of gives you that sad feeling comes through. But he uh, goes pretty fast here. Um, there are nice uh, classical cadences. This really doesn't sound like a Baroque work at all. And we get a young, sounds like a young women's chorus. And they also sound young, like they're teenagers. These aren't like, I'm saying young women here. So they're really teenage girls, I think. Uh, the soprano voice sounds suitably operatic, but this is Jodie DeVos, who... And she was the reason I wanted to hear this, because I really liked her her pyrotechnics. And she has this spectacular voice, very Italianate uh, for this work. It's fantastic. But I think it got lost in the mix. It sounds like she's a bit recessed or far away from the mic. I guess they didn't want her pinning the levels with her, her really powerful voice. So um, I felt like uh, we didn't really get a good listen to her. I, I actually... Um, heard this again in headphones just to make sure and um, indeed uh, she's kind of a little far behind everyone else sounds great uh, the mezzo comes in and sings harmony and you can hear her very clearly uh, the chorus is very present and easy to hear they're right up front and this is rather an odd balance because the chorus is of course going to drown out these solo voices if they're at full power um, the characterization is all fantastic it's a great performance and uh, we move on to the cuius animum gementum uh, soprano sings the dotted rhythm vocal line. Here again, her high notes are getting lost. And I'm wondering if she's backing off the mic. So that, you know, maybe at the, um, the suggestion of the producer. I don't know. The strings are louder than she is at her loudest at some points. And that's not good. We want to hear her. I mean, this is why we come to these recordings, really, to hear the singers. Uh, she's got some great notes in this movement, too. So it's a real shame. Uh, again, good performance. A bit lost in the mix. And this is a real shame because this was this sounds like a really great performance by her. Um, let me see. Next, Oquam Tristis et Afflicta. This is the third track. The third, the chorus starts very present, beautiful texture, and the soloists, both of them, sing along with them. After a bit, I'm picking up the mezzo's lower notes more easily than the soprano's higher ones, which seems really odd. 
Okay, que morebat et dolebat, an oddly cheerful harmony and rhythm in this section. It's a really sad work. I guess I guess uh, Pergolesi needed contrast. Uh, the mezzo sings about the mother grieving and trembling while watching her son in torment, and the tone of the mezzo is appropriate for this sentiment. <laughs> but the, the 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 rhythm sounds really cheerful in this one. I don't know. Next, quis es homo, quis non fleret, devos is in the spotlight at the beginning of the dramatic melodic line, and again, she's recessed in the mix. Her high, strong notes disappear but you can in the mix, but you can easily hear her mid-range. So this is why I think she's backing off the mic, or somebody's like twiddling the knob or something. I don't know what's going on. I don't hear that. It sounds to me like a room thing, like she's backing off. Mm. Uh, the chorus takes over, and the soprano bursts out with a passionate line. And this particular section takes up two stanzas of the prayer. We're going to start getting multiple stanzas from this point on. Uh, track six, Vidit Suum Dulcem Natum. I'm guessing this is the mezzo here, <laughs> judging by their recording quality, sadly enough. A moving section that speaks of Mary witnessing Jesus' death. It ends with a bit of tone painting of Mary witnessing Jesus' last breaths. I think he dies in the downward key change toward the end. There's a moment where the key moves downward, and that's... Jesus' end as far as um, the crucifixion goes, which is really his beginning, but let's not get into that. Uh, track 7, Ea Mater Fans Amoris. The prayer takes a turn here to supplication of Mary by the singer. This is the mezzo. Make me feel your sorrow as I mourn with you. Really lovely words, and they're beautifully set by Pergolesi in this work. 8. Fac ut ardeat cormeum, an excitable section with lots of energy and imitations of the chorus, uh, where they sing, Make my heart burn for love of Christ. Track 9. Sancta Mater Istud Agas. This section of the composition features five verses of the prayer. I go through a lot. Uh, Devosus features in the last in the first verse, and she comes in well and clearly at the beginning, and you can hear she's a bit away from the microphone. Uh, the mezzo comes in for the second verse and the chorus for the third. Soprano and mezzo alternate and then duet in the last verse. Uh, track 10, Fac ut portem Christi mortem. This is a pretty long work. It takes about a half an hour. Uh, this is a long in orchestral introduction. The mezzo sings the two verses that we'll hear. And the vocal line is hesitant and pleading here as the mezzo asks of Mary that she will be allowed to share Christ's passion. Um, by the way, when I say that vocal line is hesitant, I mean the line. It doesn't mean the singer is, you know, <laughs> holding back, okay? All right, it's just the way it's composed. Okay, inflammatus. Some of the words I use sometimes, I'm like, oh, they can be taken the wrong way. Okay, inflammatus et accensus. And Davos is heard here, and she and her voice is in a good place in the mix here, so something changed. I don't know. She sounds pretty good. Uh, well, she sounds good throughout the recording, but the recording of her here sounds a lot better. Uh, she duets with Charvet in the second verse, uh, with some entrances by the chorus. Uh, this movement sounds Mozartian, but it's 20 years before Mozart was born. Amazing. Track 12, Quanto Corpus Muriatur, a mournful opening by the orchestra, Devos and Charvet duet and alternate phrases here. And then the 13th movement, the Amen, a lively rhythm launches the Amen, very brief and lovely sound. Okay, so that's really not enough for one <laughs> disc. So we get a rather odd choice here, Joseph Haydn's uh, Symphony Number no. 49 in F minor, La Passione. 
Haydn's symphonies were often programmed by the Concert Spirituel. So there's like that Concert Spirituel theme here, that Parisian um, orchestral body that presented new works to the public in the 18th century. Uh, Haydn's symphonies often opened programs during Passiontide, which is the two weeks before Easter. So there's Holy Week and then there's the week before that. And all of that's considered to be Passiontide. Um this particular symphony shares the same key as Pergolesi's Stabat Mater and is one of the most dramatic and passionate of Haydn's compositions. I don't know about that. Mm, um, yeah, this, yeah. That, that's what the notes say, but this sounded pretty uh, mellow to me, actually. Yeah. yeah. This performance replaces the oboes and horns with an obligato organ part, and there's your, <laughs> there's your problem right there. Although, without the oboes and horns and with the organ, this work sounds very similar to the Stabat Mater mm-hmm. of Pergolesi. It was kind of amazing. They kind of sounded like uh, two cuts of the same cloth. Yeah, this, this sounded un- not, not like Haydn. You know, if I had heard this yeah. in isolation, I would never have said, oh, that's Haydn, because the organ is really prominent and it's missing some of the other characteristics. Here, here's the thing. I bet it is uh, dramatic and passionate in other performances, but uh, I think just without the oboes and horns, it, it loses some edge here. Because the organ kind of tends to soften things a bit. It, it's got like a, it doesn't have much edge to it. You know, those those big church organs are kind of nice and smooth. Anyway, this opens Adagio and uh, it starts with the same uh, mood as the Pergolesi. And the sameness of the key only heightens that feeling. The orchestration sounds rather thin and mournful. You know, it's not passionate. It's really mournful, I think, without the oboes and horns. And the discrete organ tones only add to that. I'm pretty amazed that this seven-minute movement is all adagio. It never speeds up, and the um, the mood doesn't change really. Usually, uh, contrast is the uh, is the name of the game in both Baroque and the classical era. Uh, it's unusual, and it's also very touching. I thought the second movement, Allegro di Molto, is very lively, and again, uncannily echoes the sound of the Stabat Mater. Uh, it's the orchestration and Chauvin's approach that achieve the similarity. Uh, the orchestration tempers the drama of the movement. Now, some people will see that as a problem. Um, maybe. But um, given the program, it's interesting. I wouldn't go for this as a first uh, choice, as a this as a, this Haydn symphony. I think, I suspect that the guy who wrote the, or the person who wrote the booklet notes that's the most dramatic and passionate of Haydn symphonies is thinking of other recordings. Often the, uh, the person who writes the booklet notes in these CDs hasn't heard the recording they're writing about. They're talking about the work and then they go mm-hmm. by their experience of hearing the work in other performances, mm-hmm. live or recorded. <laughs> I, I wonder if, uh, this person would change their, um, <laughs> their mind about this work if they actually had heard it that's that's not unusual by the way we can't really fault the writer for that because they're writing about the work not the performance we're hearing okay the uh, menuet and trio section uh, movement three uh pedagolesi profile again to this the menuet's edges are a bit curvier in this approach your menuets tend to have sharper edges because it's like a dance and here it kind of sounds a little smooth you know Crunchy versus creamy peanut butter difference. You know, it's kind of this is the more creamy <laughs> version. The organ features heavily in the trio, providing contrast, and it gives this secular work a churchy vibe there, which is kind of interesting. The finale is marked presto. This is the fourth movement, a quick stormy movement driven by the strings. Um, the organ provides some sustained harmony, 
It ends unexpectedly with an abrupt upward harmonic move that sounds like it's going to lead to another section, but it doesn't. The last movement is only like less than three minutes long. It's very short. So even that's unexpected. Okay, so overall, this um whole album is pretty mellow, okay? Uh, it's a unique approach to both works. So if you're looking for something a little different, that's good. It's fairly meditative or it's low-key and um, you might enjoy that. Um, the uh, performances in the Stabat Matar are all fantastic and I would say it, especially Jody DeVos's, but we can't hear it. I really feel like the... Um, we can't, we can't hear it fully. I feel like the um, the engineer kind of let us down here. Um, her, her voice just is, is too far back in the mix. Okay? So I called this an experimental album. It largely succeeds except for Jodie DeVos. And it's a shame because I think she gives a great performance here. I wish I could hear her right up front. I have a similar overall impression. I, the word that pops into my mind is attenuated. Hmm. Sort of like... The limits on that's the, an excellent word. The the vocal extremes of dyna- dynamic range and other things seem to be, you know, somewhat attenuated, and the soprano never really uh, reaches the peak that you might be expecting. That said, I, I think though that she does though, but she's just yeah. too far back in the mix because yeah. there are some notes that really ring out. Yeah. In the headphones, but they're just not ringing out in your head or in the space, you know? Yeah. That said, I, I was pretty pleased with the balance between the two vocalists and that I could hear, you know, them both equally well and make out yeah. the parts when they're uh, together. Now, what I found kind of unique was the sound of the orchestra, uh, which sounds rather small. Uh uh, I think it's not a large orchestra, but the overall presence is small. Uh, but somehow it seems appropriate for the work, and it works to highlight the general balance and prominence of the vocals. Uh, so I thought the the orchestra never seems overpowering, but it, yet it has a nice warm quality. It's part of the recording sound, too. Uh, the strings sound warm, and it is full enough but it also seems to have a uh, space, and by space I don't mean sort of uh, spatial character of the recording hall, but uh, sort of the kind of, uh, how can I say, openness between instruments so that I can hear the parts clearly. Right, and okay. so I liked that about uh, this recording. And I also did like the choice of the children's choir. Uh, yeah, it was really unique. Not just the fact unique. that there was a choir in this, too, was yeah, amazing it, enough. It sort of gives a unique sort of lighter aspect when the when the children's voices, they're all female voices, but uh, when they're in there, it sort of brightens up the uh, overall ambiance of the piece. Yeah, I don't know if they can be characterized. The, the notes say children's choir, but I don't think they can be characterized as children. They're a little older. They're yeah, like teenagers. Yeah, yeah they're, they're teenage teenagers. female voices, I think. Yeah. Overall, yeah, like I say, it's a little unusual um, take on this uh, because I've not this exact arrangement or uh, version. It's an unusual of the arrangement, so, yeah. yeah. But I, I found this one uh, interesting. And the Haydn, uh, like I said, I would never have picked this as Haydn if you had given me a blindfold uh, test for it and said, you know, what is this uh, piece? Uh, but I enjoyed that too. I like the prominence of the organ. 
And again, the same recording quality and orchestral uh, dynamics of that recording made it easy to hear all the lines in the string parts. And I got the same impression of clarity, but uh, sort of warm resonance in the recording. Uh, so I thought it's a little unusual. And as you say, missing the other orchestra parts. So that gives the organ more prominence, which makes it kind of unique. So as you say, maybe these are, uh, it sounds strange to call, you know, music from this period uh, recorded as experimental, but it's certainly a different take on uh, arrangements and performances. So maybe not uh, something you want to have as your definitive versions of these works, but definitely worth a listen and overall uh, satisfying results, I thought. Yeah, I would I would say for this, listen before you buy, okay? If <laughs> this would you'd have to see make sure you like yeah. it first. I want to mention, by the way, about the uh the Haydn Symphony. Um there's a recording from two years ago conducted by Barbara Hannigan, the soprano, on an album called La Passione, works by Grissi, Nono, and Haydn. And uh, she conducts this work on that. And it's really powerful on that album. And that's what I was thinking of when I was listening to this. And I said, wow, this is really different. So if you want to hear two completely different approaches mm. to this to this work, you can check that one out. That's on the uh, Alpha label as well. Um, Barbara Hannigan conducts the Ludwig Orchestra and sings in the Grissi and Nono pieces. And she conducts the Haydn. So that's a, that's a pretty powerful mm. uh, performance, I seem to recall. All right, so the next two classical recordings are both absolutely spectacularly recorded. Um, so if you're a, an audiophile, you're going to want to hear both of these. It's really, they're, they're, they're pretty great. Okay, the first one is Nightscapes, and this is a solo album by Magdalena Hoffmann on the harp, released by Deutsche Grammophon Records. Okay, uh, Hoffmann is German. She's a German harpist, but she was born in Basel, Switzerland. Um, a lot of the works on this album are transcriptions of piano pieces for harp, and there are one or two that were origin written originally for mm. harp. And because it's called Nightscapes, there's a nighttime theme to it. And what's funny about this is that I, I listened to it late at night to kind of get the mood. And oh. there, there was a fairly... There was a fairly jolting earthquake here in Kyoto <laughs> when I was listening yeah. to it. There was a little too too much drama there. I had to stop listening and li finish it the next morning. And it didn't want to go on. I was a bit uh, shaken up by that. We were all okay though. It was it was very it was a fairly small and very mercifully yeah. short earthquake. But it did uh yeah. <laughs> I confess I listened to this in the daytime. Um, <laughs> because we also have a recording uh that we both like called Late Night Loot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember that but one. But I confess yeah. to listening to that in the morning often, too. So I, I can tell you that please don't be, you know, feel obligated to wait till evening to listen to this because it sounds good any time of the day. It, it does sound good yeah. any time of the day. But it's a it's a beautiful recording, first yeah. of all. I've, I don't think I've ever heard a harp recording where the harp was so beautifully captured, like all the gorgeous tones on it and no doubt a lot of that has to do with uh, Hoffman's sound but uh, the engineer on this one deserves a uh, a uh, you know a nod and I'm going to give well, him that as soon as I figure out who he is but I think this um, everyone has probably an image certain instruments have a uh, I don't know get stereotyped or relegated to a kind of role especially in the orchestra you know well last week we did uh, bassoon right and right. uh that was sort of the 
the revenge of the bassoon in some ways, you know, that gets these kind of lopey kind of uh, character sort of parts in program music or in, you know, orchestral arrangements. And, and a harp sort of is left to conjure up these angelic flights of kind of strums or arpeggios. But this recording really gives you a full spectrum of what the instrument is capable of. And then what I found as you go through this, maybe I'll comment more, but especially for the piano transcriptions uh, here. Which is almost all of the works. Yeah, <laughs> especially the, uh, what do we have here? We've got some Schumann and Chopin. Uh, yeah. The harp is able, because you, you know, you're using your fingertips, so the variety of attack and articulation sort of enables it to be, what I found my noticing is that I sort of sometimes got an image of piano and sometimes mm. of guitar. And sometimes I found she's able to overlay these effects. So it, it almost sounds like you're listening to two different instruments as at once. And I found that the real appeal of, you know, especially these Chopin pieces that I'm familiar with, that it, it sounds like I'm listening to two different instruments playing that and sometimes more with what she's capable of with the variety of articulations and uh, especially that lovely sustain that the harp has. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really a kind of uh, adventure into the sound capabilities of the instrument. Yeah. So Hoffman makes a beautiful sound and uh, the recording producer, Philip Krauss finds the ideal miking and distance to capture. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this, this is a great sounding recording of a harp. Let's just say that. Um, now the program, what, the thing that attracted me to this uh, was the program because it had a combination of yeah, fairly well-known works with some that kind of come out of uh, left field a little bit. And she starts out with a work that really isn't very well-known. Uh, Otorino Respighi's Noturno Nocturne in G flat major. Um, this is originally for piano solo, and it's uh, from Respighi's, um, it's number three from Respighi's Sei Pezzi per Pianoforte, six pieces for piano. Um, this is a really nice piece. It's, it's uh, really pretty. I, I don't it's, know why we haven't heard it, but you got to think it's originally for the piano, though. But it's got this... It doesn't remind me of Respighi. Uh, well, not <laughs> the... Uh, it's, it's really it pretty. Yeah. 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 Okay, so this starts with a droning bass, which kind of always gives you the, the feeling of the countryside, or should. if I guess if you, you lived in Europe at this time, you would think about that right away, because they used to play these uh, musettes, which is kind of like a lighter version of the bagpipe, and it had a droning bass that the melody would be played over. So a droning bass with a simple melody over it, um, sort of a block... It's, it's like a split block chord where you'll have the, the two bottom notes and then the two top notes or two top notes um, split um, together on a harp. It sounds really pretty like this. Um, this has a it has a nocturnal feel to it, of course. Uh, it's pretty, it's mysterious and um, you need silence when you're listening to this or headphones because uh, the pianissimi are really, Pianissimo. Mm. Like the sound is almost disappearing, but it's always there. I listen to this in headphones to make sure it's all good. Yeah, this, this is a really nice dis discovery. This one is especially where I started to notice, oh, it sounds like a piano, but with guitar, because she gets both, you know, that Yeah, the guitar sort of, effects with the split chords, sort yeah, the, of, you know. Or, the, 
sometimes the attack is rather percussive like a piano and sometimes it's right. rather plucked like a guitar and she has that differentiation of articulation that's really nice in her touch so i thought wow that's uh, really kind of enchanting to listen to this you know tracks two and three are little known waltzes by chopin okay they're both um well the first one we hear is um in a minor and this is listed as um KK4B slash 11 or recatalogued as B150. If you follow such <laughs> things, you can look on Wikipedia for that. You know, that, that, that'll, you'll remember that, right? But in other words, it's not one of the ones that was published during his lifetime. Um, this is originally for piano solo, of course. And, uh, the version for harp is in A flat minor, not A minor. So it's been transposed down a half tone. Uh, believed to be written about 1843. So that's kind of towards the, uh, the later part of uh, Chopin's life, he died in 1849. And his life is really, his first works emerged in the 18, 1827 or so. And really he, um, his two big kind of decades were the 1830s, which is, um, when, when you think of the 1830s, you can think of them as being for the piano in Paris, what the electric guitar was to the 1960s in the US and England. Um, th th this is when the piano really became a big, uh, popular instrument and just drove all the music of the time. And then the 1840s were kind of like the hangover after the 1830s, <laughs> um, where things were starting to kind of dissipate and get kind of like uh, laden with a lot of extra layers and meaning and stuff like that. So this is a later work. It's 1843. Um, it's fairly uncomplicated, which is odd, really, for such a late work. Uh, it has a straightforward harmony, and it's beautifully and sensitively played. Um, Hoffmann has an excellent command of the rubato that Chopin's music demands. This is one of the things that really makes Chopin's music musical is the proper use of rubato, which, to be honest, I was never good at. I could never really judge that somehow. It's because you're uh, a New Yorker. You're always in you a rush so? going I'm here I'm always in a there. hurry. Yeah. I can't, like, slow Get down. Get out of my and, way. Yeah. Yeah. Linger a little bit. Yeah. You know, you stretch the melody out. to get that. Well, you got to, you know, rubato. chew a lot of bubble gum or something and stretch it out. Or, I don't know. <laughs> Get that elasticness going. Okay, anyway, uh, Chopin's uh, Valse in E minor, KK4A slash 15. <laughs> that's really not helpful, is it? <laughs> that looks horrible. Um, yeah, B56, print, that's yeah. a little better. Yeah. Um, we generally know Chopin's works by the key, and also the opus number helps us, but this is, again, mm. not published during his lifetime. This one was um, for piano solo. Version for harp is in E flat minor, so this is also transpose transposed down half a half a uh, step um, this one is probably from 1830 so really right at the beginning of uh, Chopin's uh, career um, it's formed like a rondo and it's fleeter than the previous uh, one with more figuration in it uh, the levels between the melody and accompaniment are excellently balanced and the Chopin waltz character comes through with the rubato of course great clarity and sense of line throughout uh, this piece and it's playing sparkles. There's a real sparkle to this. We get an, we get another 20th century um, Italian composer around the same era as Respighi, Ildebrando Pizzetti. Now his music was recently rediscovered. Well, it's always been around, but it's been re uh, it's it's been slowly making a comeback, which is nice with all the research that's been going on. This particular piece is called Sogno, which means dream, and uh, originally for piano solo. 
So basically, everything we've heard so far has been for originally for piano. Um, this starts slowly and tentatively. It's in 4-4, four, four, but with uh, notes grouped into three and a rest. Da-na-na, da-na-na, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, there's probably a name for that kind of uh, figuration. I'm, I just don't know what it is. Okay, it's very pretty, sensitive melody, and it really glimmers. Um, nice decorative detail in the melody after 2 minutes and 30 seconds, and very sensitively played. Give this a listen. It's your new favorite piece. Well, it's one you'll like. It's really pretty. Okay, next we get to the first multi-movement work, which was originally for harp. This is Benjamin Britten's Suite for Harp, Opus 83. Okay, this is a fairly challenging work, I have to say. Um, the, it's, the first movement is an overture, and it's labeled Majestic. And um, there are some odd dissonant Britain harmonies in this repetitive opening, adding some spice to the chords. And I like a I like a good spicy chord, so I was pretty happy to hear that. It gets aggressive with its spice block chords in the middle of the movement. I like the way this movement isn't composed to to the cliches of the harp. You know, it's it's originally a harp work, but it mm. doesn't have any harp cliches in it. No glissandi. Mm. You know, none of these arpeggiated figures and things like Cupid's that. Cupid's shooting arrows and stuff like that, yeah. All right, anyway, Britain's Suite for Harp, second movement, Toccata. Toccata is really a, means touch, and it's kind of like a, to test your technique out or to demonstrate your technique to the audience. This and one this really is a, really difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, it is a true Toccata uh, with some impressively quick, rippling figuration, changing between aggressively plucked and gently caressed Ooh. textures, yeah? I like how you say that. Yeah, caressed. <laughs> okay. This it's also very brief at a minute and thirty-three seconds. Third movement, nocturne. We get a lot of these on the Nightscapes album. Mm. Um slow, heavy treading bass pattern at the beginning, mysterious melodic figures in the high end. Okay, so we get that arpeggiated uh what's well, it's more of a treading pattern, it's not really an arpeggio. Okay, fourth movement is a fugue. You throw back to the Baroque era here. Lively. No pause between the previous movement and this one. Uh, this is a, an impressive but short fugue theme played out on the harp. Now, you, this is a hard thing to write on the harp because the harp has uh, pedals that change its key. It's not like a piano where you have... Um, yeah, usually harps aren't chromatic. That's why glissandi sounds so nice on them. You can do a nice glissando on the piano too on the, all the white keys because it's in, that's C major. But... Um, in order to change the key on a harp, you need to uh, press the pedals down, and you know, it changes the whole you know intonation and stuff. So, um, in order to in order to do this, to to have a fugue on a harp, and especially something with odd harmonies in it, it's it's a real it's a real challenge. I'm kind of wondering how that's done, hmm. or if she's actually playing a chromatic harp here. I'm not sure. Anyway, fifth movement is the last one. It's a hymn. Slow and solemn. This moves like a chorale. So if you think of Bach chorale, like a church work, with half arpeggiated, half block chords, ending in resolves. Um, it sounds very reassuring for that reason. Interesting, too. It gets into the kind of like a Spanish modal uh, ideas about three quarters of the way through that is a little bit surprising in it. Yeah. It moves very slowly. Mysterious and beautiful, I have. Okay, next is a composer that we really should get to know, John Field. He was Irish, 
And uh, he was the one who invented the nocturne for piano. And uh, Chopin picked uh, up his nocturne ideas from John Field. Not only that, interestingly enough, John Field uh, was a, apparently a great pianist and published a, uh, a piano, uh, a book of piano technique. And that book was used by um, Clara Schumann's father. I, I'm trying, I was trying, oh, Clara Wieck's father who would later she would later become Clara Schumann when he taught her to play the piano so John mm. Fields has had a big influence on music we don't really know much about him um, his uh, nocturnes are a little harmonically less uh, complex than Chopin's Chopin kind of added a lot of his uh, genius to them but uh, Fields are pretty great too and these have gorgeous night quality that Chopin also captured there's a beautiful singing melody this is required for the nocturne as far as Field and Chopin are concerned and arpeggiated accompaniment. Mm. And uh, the second nocturne that we hear from John Field is in G major, H58. These are both originally for piano solo, by the way. Uh, this one has a rising and falling accompanying arpeggio, and a bit closer to the nocturnes Chopin would write with a single singable melody. All right, now we get into the uh, the French harp composers here, or at least one of them. Henriette Peignet, Danse de Lutin. And a lutin is kind of a, it's a, yeah, you can think of it as a goblin or a leprechaun, some magical creature of the woods. Um, the uh, booklet translated as it as an elf, and that's probably most appropriate here. But we shouldn't think of um, like Lord of the Rings elves for this. These are like little elves. They're little creatures that, mm. that are magical, sort of, like a leprechaun. And they're a little playful like a leprechaun, too. Um this has a quick rhythm and a very light touch from the harpist to evoke the magical world of these creatures. Uh, it, yeah, it sounds more elf-like than goblin. Goblins are kind of menacing. <laughs> and leprechauns are a little uh, tricksy. So this sounds a little more innocent. There's a flickering firefly-type quality to the glimmer of the harp tone in this, expertly captured by Hoffmann and the engineer. Uh, the middle section is more song-like and reflective and features some harmonics from the harp. Very pretty touch on the ending, arpeggiated chords, and final short glissando. It's a pretty piece. Uh, next we get uh, Clara Schumann, interestingly enough, since her her technique kind of comes from John Field's um, um, sort of writing via her father. Um, this is a Notturno in F major. Interesting that she would choose to write a piece like this. Number two from Soiree Musicale, Opus 6. Originally, of course, for piano solo. Clara Schumann was one of the great pianists of the twentieth of the 19th century. Sorry. This is a really dark-sounding nocturne. It's um, played in the lower register of the harp. Uh, the melody is in the lower part of the melodic range of the instrument, and it broods. It's really kind of romantic, you know, like mid, mid-century mid romantic. It gets very pretty toward the middle with Hoffmann utilizing her gorgeous light touch. And I like the way the piece breaks unexpectedly into a Siciliano rhythm past the 2 minute 15 second mark. The arpeggiated accompaniment is gone by this point. Droning chords replace it. There's very inventive accompaniment throughout this piece. It's a really well-realized uh, mm. composition by Clara Schumann. A nice find. Probably fun to play too if you're a pianist. You should pick it up. Next we get another French harpist, Marcel Tournier. La Danse de Musique. A Musique is a Russian peasant. And this oh. is number 12 from Im Image Suite number 4, Opus 39, number 3. You wanted to say something about Russian peasants there, uh, Russ? 
No, I've never met any myself. So I've never met a Russian peasant, but <laughs> they they get ridden in battle. I feel like I have though because I've heard lots of music <laughs> that they dance to in my life. Okay, so I feel like I have a picture of them. Anyway, I have been to Russia though, but you have been to Russia. Yeah, yeah. I've never been. Yeah, I had lots of actually. Um, I had a lot of good food and, of course, lots of vodka as well. And um, actually, you know, uh, one of the disconcerting things about going to uh, Russia is, like, I couldn't read anything because oh, I don't know the alphabet. It's the alphabet, right? Yeah. But I did find the people uh, actually quite accommodating and they helped me out a lot. Uh, wow. Despite not getting a lot of smiles, because <laughs> I don't think <laughs> Russians they're, smile they're a lot. Not, they're not a smiley people, are no, they? No, but they were quite uh, kind and, and helpful and... Um, yeah, I had some interesting uh, food. Uh, especially, I was able to uh, eat some uh, like uh, game meat and things. Oh. So rabbit and deer with. Yeah, uh, you get a lot of that in of, Europe too. Yeah, local Western spices Europe. and uh, lots of vodka and and uh, and uh, see some historical things too. So it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Interesting experience. But I, hope you I didn't meet summer. any peasants, no. So <laughs> you probably could have if you I traveled have, like, yeah. outside of the city. Could have, yeah. Anyway, this this piece has a two note harmony uh, in the accompaniment, and the um, melodic material proceeds in four note phrases, so very much like a dance. It sounds like mm. a busy piece and rather hard to play. Yeah, and it's originally for the harp too. So the quiet section that begins at around the one minute thirty second mark is really amazing for the gentleness of the sound. Conjured by the harpist, uh, Hoffmann. After that, the dance rhythm really opens up as it heads towards the mid-range of the instrument, and we get the material in harmonic form as well after 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, the rhythm picks up at the end and leads to an exciting and quickly realized ending. Next, Chopin again. Waltz in A minor, Grand Valse Brillante, Opus 34, number 2. Originally for piano, of course. This is a familiar waltz, um, taken at a slow tempo here. She plays this fairly slowly. Uh, this sounds a lot more gentle than the original for piano, which mm. spins more via the waltz rhythm. It has more of like a you know, spin to it. It's very pretty here, with the 3-4 not coming across as dancey, but merely marking the rhythm. It doesn't really sound like a waltz you'd dance to in this performance. Mm. A lot of this work occurs in the lower end of the harp's register, and it ends rather abruptly and unexpectedly. Next, we get rather a surprise. Fred Hirsch, jazz pianist. Yeah. Born, born in 1955, still active. Um, he's a pretty intellectual pianist, and mm. uh, he wrote down a few of his improvisations, including this one. He wrote, uh, he published a set of three scores, three works called uh, Three Character Studies. And this is uh, one of them, Nocturne for the Left Hand Alone. Now, I'm not mm. sure this is going to be for the left hand alone of the harp. It is for the piano. What's the right hand doing at night? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I do wonder why Fred Hurt... Well, you don't know. People can't use their right hand. There were a lot of these kind of works after the World War One because a lot of people lost the use of one of their hands. Right. So they would. Uh, there were a lot of works for those musicians who had been mm. injured in the war. All right. Interesting choice here. Hirsch wrote this one down. It's pretty angular and slow in its accompanying arpeggiation. The accompaniment is traditional a la field and Chopin. 
The piece remains rather slow in its progress, not a traditionally beautiful work, but one that requires a bit of concentration to listen to. It's almost like a comment on a nocturne. It sounds stark, and it's got a very pretty cadence at the end. Yeah, it sticks out as being uh, unique here, uh, but interesting to listen to. Yeah, it leads into uh, Jean-Michel Damas, a, a composer who wrote a lot of light music, and I really like just about all of it, especially that for the harp. He, was, he lives in the 20th century. This is his Fantasie pour harp sur des motifs de Comte d'Hoffmann d'Offenbach, the Tales of Hoffmann. And uh, interestingly enough, the uh, yeah. harpist's uh, name is also Hoffmann, Hoffmann, so it's kind of like a little connection here. All right, this is the, from the famous um, themes from the famous opera. Uh, it has this loud, grand, regal opening, which the harp does quite well, surprisingly, uh, with quickly arpeggiated chords followed by music box-like delicacy in its figuration and harmonics. About a minute and a half in, we hear the famous barcarolle rhythm um, from this section of the opera. Um, and then this gets some ornate figuration added to it. Um, it waltzes a bit at uh, 2 minutes and 46 seconds. At 3.30, we're back to the barcarolle with the uh, Venetian-sounding song on top. And gorgeous playing and characterization throughout with the upper decorative patterns beautifully taken. The piece really is a set of different settings of the melody over the barcarolle. It ends rather suddenly as the last go-round of the melody ends. Finally, we get a Chopin Nocturne. This is the first Chopin Nocturne and only one we're hearing on this album because the other, all the other Chopin works were waltzes. Again, originally for piano solo. Um, this is a later nocturne um, from the 1840s. Uh, quietly, I think. But it's... Anyway, it's not for, not an early one. Uh, with some dark tinges of harmony. This actually was the first nocturne by Chopin we're hearing, as I mentioned. Um, the piece goes on for about seven minutes, so it's one of the longer single-movement works on the album. The usual beautiful balance between melody and accompaniment is heard here. Tension is well sustained over the seven-minute length, but by now we know we're in the hands of a highly skilled player, even by professional standards. Lovely, feather-light, last arpeggiated chord. A lovely send-off. All right. If you're a harp fan, you have to hear this. It's beautifully played, and it may be, as I said, the best recorded harp album I've ever heard. It's a keeper for me. I plan on listening to it often. The theme of Nightscapes works well for the harp. Excellent program. This is like ideal to even fall asleep to if you want to do that. But it's worth paying attention to as well. Highly, highly recommended, especially if you like the harp. Yeah, even if you, I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of people who would say, oh, I'm, I'm a harp fan. Uh, but some are. No, I've, in, met, I've met be. a lot of people who are. Yeah. Yeah, even with an open mind or you don't have a, you know, a good idea of what solo harp could be like. Uh, even within this theme of, uh, you know, nighttime, so to speak. There's a lot of variety of music here uh, to, uh, you know, keep you actively listening for various changes. And then, uh, so you get the appeal of, you know, what the harp can do with compositions written specifically for it. But I found the extra charm of the piano works, particularly the Chopin, uh, that you probably would be familiar with uh, if you're a classical music listener, but they get an extra charm on the harp, getting that you know, little special character of the different types of attack that are possible, the different sustain, 
And uh, so you get to appreciate the unique sort of uh, tonal characteristics and uh, technique and attack that the harp can provide. So overall, a really entertaining and uh, engaging recording. Uh, you might think, oh, just a harp for all of these pieces. Trust me, you'll be uh, drawn in and interested to the end. Yeah, this is an amazing program. I liked it a lot. Really well done. All right, and last for our last sound spectacular, we have Ravel Orchestral Works, performed by, and this is really what drew me, Symphonia of London, conducted by John Wilson. This is on a Chandos SACD, which makes it even better, so it's in that nice uh, DSD sound if you've got the capabilities to play that. Yeah, I should say, th this is, um, I, I was interested in this because this is one of the, one of the best recordings I've heard uh, in a while, sound quality-wise. And uh, apparently, it's not a native DSD recording. It is a high-resolution oh. uh, recording. But uh, I actually, in looking up reviews of this, there were some people complaining about the recording. And what huh. they were complaining about was that the soft passages were too soft. <laughs> and what, investigating a little bit more, uh, what I've uh, basically deduced is that this recording has, you know, almost maybe zero at all uh, compression in it, which is just wonderful for classical music. So it has a really expanded dynamic range from the softest passages to the loud. You're going to get the real experience of actually, you know, being in front of an orchestra. Maybe the best that can be captured on recorded media uh, as far as that full dynamic range goes. So if you can sit in a silent room with a great sound yeah. system or uh, headphones and block out all the other noise, you're going to get a real sonic experience with this album. It is just a fabulous recording. And the performances are great too. Uh, but we'll get into that. But this probably sticks out so far this year certainly as the the best sounding recording that I've heard. Yeah, let's give uh, some credit to the recording producer, Brian Pigeon, and the sound engineer, Ralph Cousins, uh, and assistant engineer, Alex James. Man, this is really an amazing sounding recording. Yeah. Indeed, without compression, you're going to want... Yeah, <laughs> this is one of those recordings where you have to... I, I, I feel like I have to put it on a special shelf so that I'll listen to it when the, the heater goes off and before the air yeah. conditioning comes on, you know, in the springtime yeah. and the autumn. You have this two-week period before you yeah, when, No background when you sounds. Anoak, yeah. anoak, uh, Not ideal to listen to chamber. in the car. Let's just put it that way no, with all no. that road noise. No, you don't want to hear this no, in the car. Or your headphones on the uh, subway with the uh, windows open or something. No. But you could put your headphones on your house and get a really great yeah. experience from that. Indeed, I'm looking at this, and it doesn't say anything about DSD on the album. It just says it's, that it's SAC. Oh, it does say DSD. No, it, I think it says um, high-res, 24-bit, uh, 96 kilohertz, five-channel recording. So it's, right. it's a true, I believe, looking at the uh, CD backing, it's a, a true multi-channel recording. It's not sort of a you know remixed version of that. So you do get a true surround sound on the SACD. But I mean, I just listened to the uh, uh, Flack uh, Deezer recording of it. And right. that, it's, you know, it's just astounding on that too. So whatever, however you listen to it, if you listen to it in an uncompressed capacity, you're going to re realize the 
true dynamic nature of this recording. Uh, yeah, I think the I think the last really great um, sounding recording that we heard was also by this ensemble in the uh, the Respighi works, right? Oh, the uh, Pines of Rome Foundation. That was this, the same too. Oh, really? Okay. The same, same that's ensemble, positively yeah. explosive that recording. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so it will bring the walls down. If I were you, listener, I would just uh, go to um, some music site or to your um, uh, whatever you stream from and type in a Symphonia of London, John Wilson, and just yeah. listen to all of the recordings that come down. Yeah. The funny thing is, is I've programmed this to uh, talk about tonight, and they've just released a new one. <laughs> this only wow. came out two months ago or three months ago, and they've already released a new one of German works uh, by Richard Strauss and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And Franz Schrecker, who we talked about on that uh, recording that you liked from last year that you mentioned as one of your top ten, um, the Zemlinsky oh, yeah. with yeah. Petrenko, conducted by Vasily Petrenko. Yeah, so I enjoyed was, those um, a lot. So we're going to have to talk about yet another <laughs> John Wilson oh, album yeah, in a few on. weeks probably. Yeah. We'll have to see. Yeah. I really like what they're doing with the sound. It's uh, yeah, not the compromising are pretty anything. Great they, want, they want it to be heard you know, in a full dynamic range, which is great. All right, the first work on this is La Valse. Now, this is, um, I've been reading a lot about this work lately because um, Ravel himself said that it's set in 1855 and it's sort of like this this spinning waltz that it just spins out of control at the end. But the piece was begun um, in around 1909, 1908, and he finally finished it in 1920. Like, he wrote sketches for it back before the mm. war. The whole, the entirety of World War One passed. And um, th then it finally got its first performance in 1920. And um, he claimed that the war didn't influence it at all. It was just like his this an image. But people have always interpreted it as being you know influenced by the war. And I hear it that way too. How can you not? You know, it's just sort of a. It it has this really brutal ending. Yeah, um, those cacophonous waves of sound at the end are just. Yeah, and not only that. Um, Ravel died in around 1937, 36, and uh, then World War II started three years later and was even more brutal. So this work just gained in. And then mm. now suddenly it seemed, um, you know, like he was predicting the future, sort of, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's so the work has picked up a lot of meaning that Ravel claims he didn't intend. But as someone who's done creative work myself, um, there are all sorts of things that can be read in your work that you don't even notice are there. I mean, you intend to put it there, but um, the, the subconscious puts a lot of stuff in there that uh, that wants to be expressed that maybe you're not you don't really <laughs> you're not consciously aware of. You well, know, scary. Well, that's the way we all are. It's not just <laughs> it's just that artists embrace it. Um, all right, so this work I, I wrote right away has a wide dynamic range. Um, it assembles itself into a waltz from the opening fragmentary figures. It's really cool, actually, and it starts very, very quietly. I mean, you really need to... I, I wouldn't turn it up because it gets pretty loud, but uh, just have a very quiet room when you listen to this. Um, this piece, um, to be effective, needs momentum above all, as all waltzes do, and the entire waltz rhythm is assembled after we hear the harp glissando. There's a harp glissando. Uh, we hear a variation on the theme by the oboe, then high violins, then flutes. The theme gets pompous with the heavy brass and timpani. The violins smooth the theme out and glide into the next variation. Clarinets and cello pick up the theme. Fantastic orchestration throughout. So you have great sound quality. And you have just this fantastic Ravel orchestration in this work. This is really just something to... Uh, really just 
exalted. It's just a, such a fantastic sounding recording, and you know, it's a it's great orchestration. Yeah, uh, everything about this is fantastic, really. Okay, so the piece goes on. Um, the uh, we re- revisit some earlier themes, and we start hearing a chromaticism in the cellos, and the chromaticism in this work is sort of meaning like. All the notes are played in half steps. There's no real sense of a key. Um, this is representing the deterioration of the waltz. And by um, association, which Ravel claims he didn't m- mean, the deterioration of Western civilization itself. So this work can kind oh, of wow. be thought of in that way. Um, Ravel said, well, he didn't specifically say it wasn't about that, but he said it's just about his like love of the waltz. Anyway, Um he reorchestrates the second half after about, which starts at about the nine minute sixteen second part. Uh, we hear the themes again, led by different solo instruments. The waltz begins to whirl unstoppably until at ten minutes there's a crash, and the coda, which is kind of like an extra part tacked onto the end, is a dance macabre, not an elegant waltz. And the work ends with a measure of four four, so we completely lose the waltz time in the very last measure. Mm. As the music becomes uh, desperate, trying to assert itself as a waltz, but the brutality and decay hidden in the increasingly chromatic harmony take over and erode the rhythm as well, and there's just no more waltz. Okay. Maybe it's happening to us now, although I guess it already <laughs> happened a few times. I enjoyed this performance. It's a great sound. Makes an impact. Well judged. Mm. Okay. Next we get to to a ballet. Actually, Lavalse has an interesting story. Um Ravel wanted it performed as a ballet, and he played it to uh, Serge Diaghilev, the uh, the leader of the of the ballet russe, the what do you call it, the uh, uh, impresario, let's say. Uh, and uh, Diaghilev uh, refused it. He said it's a portrait of a, a ballet, not a ballet, and that made Ravel really mad. <laughs> so he and he uh, he uh, years later he met Diaghilev again. He wouldn't shake his hand. Diaghilev challenged him to a duel. And his friends talked uh, Diaghilev out of it, so uh, the, the, and the two of them never met or spoke again, which is really sad because uh, Ravel did write a great ballet for um, uh, Diaghilev called um, Daphnis and Chloe, which is a fantastic mm, score. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, really, just at the peak of his, um, uh, you know, uh, set powers of uh, using orchestral color. Uh, mm. This work, Ma Mère Loi, does that too. This was written in 1911, and it was commissioned by uh, Jacques Rouchet for his Théâtre des Arts. This, Jacques Rouchet was sort of another impresario. This had nothing to do with Diaghilev. All right, so this would be the centerpiece of the album, and it's a really beautiful work. Ma Mère Loi is Mother Goose. So these are the uh, stories from... Uh, uh, Charles Perrault and others, um, the the French the French stories that we know, like the Sleeping Beauty and those sorts of things. Okay, this starts with a prelude, and it's uh, gently in the woodwinds. Uh, Ravel's startling orchestral timbres come out in this richly realized performance to recording. At a uh, minute twenty three seconds, we hear the Sleeping Beauty theme, which will feature in the uh, second tableau, which is track four. Um, beautiful strings in this. The track ends with the opening theme in low, foreboding woodwinds. It's lost its sweetness, because I guess the beauty is now sleeping. Wild bird sounds lead to the first tableau, I guess sort of a warning. I should mention, uh, Marmelois was originally written 
for two young girls to play at the piano. It was a piano duet. Hmm. And uh, we heard it, too. Uh, we heard it on the uh, French Duets album from right. last year with Stephen Osborne and uh, Paul Lewis. All right, hmm. That was on one of the first episodes we ever did, maybe number three or number four. And that's a great recording, too, on the Hyperion yeah. label. Yeah. But here it's expanded. And um, this premiere, the first um, tableau, the first scene, Dans, Dans du Rouet and Sen, which is a spinning wheel dance, a scene, is the only movement that's originally composed for this ballet. This is not in the piano duet version. Also, the piano duet version, the, the uh, movements are in di- a different order than here. Um, it's this, it starts the story of the Sleeping Beauty pricking her finger on the spinning wheel's spindle. So we get the dance first. And then there's kind of like this uh, dark moment where you hear her prick her fingers. Just after the two-minute mark, you can hear that happen. Or at the moment when it happens. It, the music really darkens. There's wonderful detail captured in this recording, and that's important for Ravel's very precise, subtle scoring. Second scene the pavan of the sleeping beauty, the Belle au bois dormant. This story comes from Charles Perrault, if anyone wants to read the original. Uh, this gorgeous melody... Now, he didn't write the story. He's retelling them from, I guess, older sources. Uh, and we know his version today. This is how we've received it, because he wrote them all down. Uh, this gorgeous melody led off the original piece for Piano Four Hands, and uh, it's got a nice slow pace here in its orchestrated version, possibly due to the orchestration. It's slowed down, and we're allowed time to luxuriate in the beautiful sounds. There's an interlude that starts around 2 minutes and 35 seconds, and uh, this leads to the Beauty and the Beast movement, which is next. I like the effect of the string instruments bouncing their bows off the strings to get that dun 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 sound. And then there's like a glissando in the strings too. Really inventive orchestration from Ravel. Third tableau, third theme, Les Entretiens de la Belle de la Bête. This is the Conversations of the Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, by the way, was written by Madame Le Prince de Beaumont. And that's her only... Um, famous story really it's it's become a real classic it's not very long either uh, the opening clarinet and elegant 3-4 rhythm represents beauty's words uh, the beast is heard in the bassoon at 1 minute and 5 seconds and he doesn't get a nice <laughs> dance theme because he's big and ugly he's heavy and seemingly clumsy and his theme falls chromatically it's not even musical but gets off some nice reedy low bassoon notes Mm-hmm. A crisis is reached at the 2 minute and 10 second mark. We hear the beauty and the beast speak at the same time at 2 minutes and 20 seconds, a favorite technique of Ravel. He does it in a lot of his piano pieces as well. He'll often combine contrasting themes like this. Uh, a second crisis is reached at the 3 minute mark where beauty agrees to marry the beast, I guess. At 3 minutes and 4 seconds, we hear a harp glissando. And at that moment, uh, the beast transforms into a handsome prince. So there's your cue there. You listen ahead at the 3 minute and 4 second mark. <laughs> His theme is now played by a cello. So he's kind of handsomer now, not the ugly bassoon. <laughs> Sounds more elegant on the cello. The bassoon, of course, can be pretty, but is used to an uglier effect here. Uh, there's another transition, and we hear the uh, Tom Thumb tableau, and the scene that's happening here in the fourth scene, Petit Pousset, Tom Thumb, also known as Hop Oh My Thumb. We have such dumb names for these stories in English. <laughs> you know, one of the stories not in this ballet uh, in French is uh, Le Maître Chat, 
Le maître chat, or also le chat botte, um, which means the master cat or the booted cat. But in English, we gave it the appalling name uh, Puss, Puss in Boots. boots. <laughs> uh, horrible. Why did they do that? It's actually it's actually got a good name in French. Why didn't they just translate the name? Puss? It's not even and, in. It's <laughs> mm. There's an apostrophe N. Oh, yeah. I just hate it so much. It's a good story. I like the story. Anyway, read it in French. <laughs> it's a good story in English, too. Just take take a marker and just cross Puss in Boots out and write the master <laughs> cat. All right? It would be better. All right. Anyway, back to Petit Pousset or Tom Thumb or <laughs> Hop Oh My Thumb. God, jeez. <laughs> Tom Thumb is so better. Petit Pousset, by the way, I think literally means little pocket. Okay, I think. Posh, I don't know. Pousset, I'm not really sure. Little Thumb, I don't, I'm not really sure what this means, actually. Anyway. Let's take a look here. Um, we hear the rising strings indicating Tom Thumb dropping breadcrumbs so he and his brothers can find their way out of the woods. They've been banished too. Um, I've heard the oboe solo taken more elegantly, but it's good here. Uh, very present. Um, by the way, the, the recording of this of this work to have is uh, Charles Dutois and the Orchestra Symphonique de Montreal from the 1970s, I believe. It's a beautiful recording, and although older than this, not in, but the orchestra positively glows. And uh, this is probably a better recording, but those performances really are special, um, mm. especially in this work. Uh, so I'd recommend that. All the tempos are taken beautifully, and they've really, it's one of those albums that I've absorbed so completely that I really think of that as the ideal. <laughs> so I'm always judging other performances against that. There are reassuring cadences in this opening, but at two minutes we hear the birds imitated by wind instruments. You you'll, you can't miss them, really, because it's, it's kind of harsh sounding. They come and eat the breadcrumbs so the brothers can't find their way out of the woods. There are some extremely quiet passages in this movement that are really magical, and the segment ends with the boys lost in the woods. <laughs> we don't hear the end of the story. <laughs> we just leave them there. Anyway, there's another transition, this time with a nice harp intro at 3 minutes and 35 seconds. We hear the beginnings of the gorgeous harp accompaniment to the next fifth tableau. And there's also a celesta to add some magic. Okay, I just want to look. Yeah, little thumb. Pousset is a, th pousset is a thumb. Called little thumb. Okay, in French, petit pousset. Okay. The fifth is Les Deronettes Imperatrice. De pagode. Laid, laid means you're ugly, so Laidronette is little ugly girl. Um, Empress of the Pagodas. Now, this uh, character comes from Madame Dolnoy's story, The Green Serpent, Le Serpent Vert. Um, and Madame Dolnoy is interesting because she actually coined the term Conte de Fées, which we translate to English as fairy tales. That's her word. And we mm. still use that word today, so... Good on her. Um, this is probably the most beautifully orchestrated movement in the work. Um, in the story, Lady Ronette doesn't necessarily go to China, but it sounds like she's in China here with all the uh, the kind of angular sort of, uh, I guess, oriental or maybe we can say orientalist um, yeah, rhythms and melodies. Mm. But she is in a faraway land in the story. It doesn't signify where, so it may as well be China, I guess. Uh, we hear her servants over a pentatonic 
Um, That's so pretty. It's an Aegis-sounding theme. They're preparing her bath. She arrives for it at the minute and 10-second mark. I always wonder how they do this in the actual ballet. I mean, she gets into a (laughs) bath. I mean, does she dance at all? I don't know. Um, It doesn't sound like a terribly happy occasion by the sound of it, or maybe it just sounds regal. Um, cause it's the, her bath section really slows down. She is far away from home and she's been, uh, she was a pretty little girl, but she was like an evil spell was cast on her and she was made ugly by some sorceress in the story. Uh, the theme of the servants and the empress are overlapped and we magically go back to the opening theme of the servants. There's another transmission transition and we get to the apotheosis, le jardin férique. This is where the sleeping beauty story is resolved. Um, in the ballet, the Sleeping Beauty is awakened in this section, which is the apotheosis. Then we get a section um, in the original piano duet of a fairy garden where only the innocence of children is welcome. And I love the way the music hands us that innocence so we can enter too. Ravel was really good at this sort of conjuring the sense of innocence in general. This is one, really one of his best scores. The orchestration here is phenomenal. A fantastic ending to a magical ballet score. Um, this movement starts quietly in the strings and builds slowly to an exhilarating climax uh, full of orchestral detail, lots of percuss- chiming percussion instruments. There are some gorgeously orchestrated hushed passages in that buildup. Um the the only thing about this particular performance is the ending is taken fairly quickly and ends abruptly. And I feel like it loses some of its enchantment when it does that. Dutois does this so much better. Um, I'd have liked him to take a more leisurely approach, meaning uh, Wilson here, uh, to the end so we could bask in the glorious orchestration. Um, let's see. Um, also, Dutois, at the very end of his recording, does something really magical that I'm not really entirely sure is in the score. The upper layer of instruments suddenly disappears so that you're left with just the low kind of strings and winds and brass. Mm. It's really magical. Um, That doesn't happen here, though. Is it a different version of the score? I really don't know. Um, Otherwise, this is a solid, beautifully recorded version of the score. I just felt like the last Mm. section was a bit of a letdown. Lots of nice tone colors here. Oh, geez, yeah. uh, Burst out of... uh, it's like uh, looking at all the fruits in the produce section or something like that. You know, just <laughs> coming out in, at you. In a tropical country, yeah. right? In Thailand yeah, or something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or as um, Burt Reynolds said in the movie The End, so it's like Walt Disney throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> That's freaking goofy. Yeah. All that color. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, I, I didn't mean to ruin that for you, listener. Because uh, <laughs> this is a beautiful score. It's, I really love yeah, it. Yeah, really nice. Anyway. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, track nine, we get into some uh, piano works that were transcribed for orchestra. This is Alborada del Gracioso. Um, composed 1904 to 1905. It's the fourth movement of the Miroir piano works, which I love to death. I just love those to the skies, all of them. Um, he, he orchestrated, uh, Ravel orchestrated two of them, and we hear one of them here. Uh, Alborada was um, uh, orchestrated in 1918. Um, this one is, um, let's see, it has a Spanish theme. A gracioso is a, or gracioso, I guess you'd say, is a jester. And uh, Ravel wrote quite a few Spanish-tinged works, including an entire opera called Le Espanol. 
Uh, here, the orchestra, like the piano in the original version, is made to sound like a giant guitar with all sorts of repeated notes, repeating bass lines, and plucking effects. And you get the impression that the maybe the strings are a little broken, too, just from some of the way... You know, the, the ferociousness mm-hmm. with which some of the uh, plucking effects come through. It's really amazing, an amazing realization. Um, the song comes in the middle section, starting at 1 minute and 50 seconds. It's sung by the bassoon here, with the rest of the orchestra emulating the gentle strumming of the guitar as he does his alborada. By the way, in English, that would be an albad. An albad is a dawn song, whereas a serenade would mm-hmm. be a, a, an evening song. Um, or an orbaid, I guess we'd say in English. Um, we don't hear these too much, but you know, you go, you wake up your honey with a nice uh, tune in the morning. Why don't you try that and see what happens to you today? People used to like that one time, though. I know it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in in Italy, even then, they neighbors used to throw flower pots at the guy, you know, but he didn't care, you know, <laughs> yeah. They they still do that today in Italy. If you're making a oh, lot really? of noise, if well, if you're making a lot of noise and you're in a residential neighborhood, mm. people will throw pots of water on you. Oh, from the wow. from the upper floors. They no, they'll do that. I've oh, seen wow. it happen. <laughs> At least it's water. Wow. Yeah. yeah, they just want you to go away. Basically, mm. I guess if you're caterwauling to your honey with a guitar, they'll throw other things. Anyway, <laughs> um. We Okay, so we get back to the first section at the 5 minute and 10 second mark, which is more raucous than it was at the beginning. Uh, beautifully orchestrized, beautifully realized orchestral detail on this gorgeous recording. How many times am I going to say this? This is a fantastic <laughs> album. Okay, next, one of my favorite works of all time. It's also a piano work. Uh, a piano work that I've played, actually, and it's not easy, even though it's slow, because you need, like, giant hands to play it. Uh, Pavan pour un infant de funt. Um, mm. composed in 1899 and orchestrated in 1910. That's really a long time from there. Um, a pavan, an infant defunt, is a dead Spanish princess. So it's got this Spanish theme. And also just the, the fact that it's a pavan means it has like a Baroque kind of feeling to it too. Uh, this is kind of shaped like a rondo because we hear that the same theme three times, but it's differently orchestrated each time. The orchestration changes subtly for each return of the main theme. And it it sounds kind of old-fashioned, too, with some beautiful harmonies in it. Um, One of the things that attracted me to it on the piano was the the gorgeous harmonies used in the cadence. There are a lot of really great, colorful notes in it. Um, Yeah, get yourself a quiet space and bathe in these sounds. Really fantastic. Okay, tracks 11 through 18 is another solo piano work that was orchestrated. Vals Noble et Sentimental. This was um, orchestrated in 1912. I think it may have been written in 1911 for the piano, so he orchestrated this one right away. Now, this one, it, it was composed completely before the war, so there's none of this darkness to this one. It really is, genuinely, just a set of uh, different waltzes. Yeah, and they're all very dreamy, and they flow into each other. Yeah. It's uh, sort of like this endless flowing dance that's uh yeah really yeah. relaxing and uh yeah they're lovely through. works and not only that okay first of all the name comes from uh, schubert's works vals noble and vals sentimental so schubert wrote a lot of these these sort of sets of waltzes and um the waltz was a big vienna thing schubert lived in vienna so of course he would 
take to that. Uh, Ravel loved this tradition too. Um, one of the things you want to notice in this, and even in Lavals too, he uses this technique too in Lavals to indicate the decay of the waltz, is the use of hemiola. A hemiola is like when you have a 3-4 rhythm, uh, the uh, melodic line will be playing two dotted quarter notes, so it'll sound like two played over the three. So you have two different sort of um, time, almost time signatures or rhythms going mm. at the same time. And he'll use that a lot in these works, and it makes it really appealing. Um, so you're not just hearing this annoying waltz rhythm throughout. <laughs> well, you are, but you're not hearing that, you know, that you know, mm. the Johann Strauss kind of thing, like forever. That was really catchy, though. I shouldn't say anything. Anyway, this starts out the uh, Moldere. Starts off explosively with a waltz rhythm. Like, it kind of sounds like you're at the Moulin Rouge or something. Um, and then we'll hear a series of other waltzes of different character. All right. Second, Asselant. Uh, this is a gentle waltz. We can hear a lot of the hemiola in this one uh, against the three-beat waltz rhythm. The third movement, Modere, is my personal favorite. It's taken very slowly here, and pleasingly so. There's more hemiola beguiling the ear. There's some beautiful chime effects in the orchestration at a minute and 15 seconds, followed by glowing light strings playing the theme. Uh, the Asse Anime, fourth movement, is a little more animated than the previous waltz, and has a kind of sweeping quality to it. There's a bit more of a whirl to it. Fifth movement, Presque Lant, starts off not sounding like a waltz at all. It sounds pretty earnest and quiet with lots of hemiola. The sixth uh, movement, <laughs> more hemiola, like more cowbell, right? <laughs> all right, Asse Vif, sixth movement. This one's got a bit of a whirl to it but it's quick and over before a minute has passed. The seventh waltz, Moin Vif, has a very tentative opening to this longish waltz. Then the actual waltz feel begins at about 35 seconds. Uh, the world begins at around a minute, and a climax is reached at a minute 10, a minute 20 seconds. There's another episode featuring fluttering flutes, which is a gorgeous effect. Um, listen, to, if you really want to hear this, the, this type of effect used to its perfection. Listen to the uh, sunrise um, or daybreak section of the Daphnis and Chloe ballet. It's just really mesmerizing. One of my favorite sections of music ever. Okay, this one has a big climax recalling the beginning, and then we get an epilogue where it recalls all of the waltzes we previously heard. We hear them in sort of fragmentary things, and they're all in a different order. It's almost like someone who's been to the party recalling all the dances afterward. It has this sense of memory, that's, and it's just kind of drifting away, sort of. It's not all there. There's something weary about the movement, too, as though the party's over and only memory remains. Finally, track 19. Say it with me, everybody. Bolero. Bolero. Okay, everybody's favorite Ravel work. Okay, there's not really much happening in this. Well, actually, there is, but not, not much of it is, like, um, structural. Um all we really get is it's a it's about a 15 minute work um it's a long crescendo and we get brilliant reorchestration of the theme which never changes every time it repeats so mm. you want to be if you want to be um interested in this piece you got to listen to who's playing the theme yeah because it changes every time and it's not just one instrument sometimes it's a har several instruments in harmony and it's really magical I thought um, this version, you know, there's lots of versions. I, I thought this one was particularly well-paced 
Oh, uh, I thought so too. Yeah. What I noticed was the sax, the sax melody, which uh, which is unique because you know you don't yeah often you don't hear, you sax hear a sax in classical in a, music, or, and then yeah. the trombone. The those versions are particularly sexed up. Like, uh, compared I guess to, that's true. Yeah. yeah, to other versions, uh, there's a little bit of too much smarm in them. And that, it's not overboard, but I felt like uh, they're maybe having a little too much fun <laughs> on yeah. those parts in this version. But I got a smile out of those, anyways. No, I got a smile out of it. Yeah, in a work yeah. that's just been beaten to death, like this yeah. one is. Okay, so this does come up sounding fresh here. I really enjoyed this, yeah. actually. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the the rhythm remains sharply detailed throughout too. Um, uh, yeah, notice how the melody is handed off to different instruments in the orchestra. Pace is kept steady, and this winds up being a satisfying performance of the piece. I was especially happy to hear the timbral detail of the rhythm instruments peeking out of the texture too. So we got to hear them. Um, so all in all, fantastic recorded sound and overall excellent interpretations and performances. Yeah. I still kind of prefer Dutois in interpretation, I think, but uh, I enjoyed this a lot. And uh, do yourself a favor and just listen to other John, this and after you hear this, listen to other Symphonia of London and John Wilson recordings because they're all just fantastic. Yeah, this is a real treat for the ears. Uh, I like, it does due diligence to all the wonderful timbres, the tonal palette of Ravel. You know, you got the whole... You got the big box of crayons, you know, not the 16 yeah. or the 24. You got that big one. Uh, the 64. The, yeah, the Crayola 64. crayons, yeah. All the oil paints, the whole canvas Brick is red. there. Yeah. <laughs> All the different ones, even if you can't name them, like- Umber. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. I have a very poor vocabulary for actual visual colors, but I can recognize them. I'm not very them. good at visual colors either. Yeah, when I hear them, and, and so they're all really clear here. Uh, brought out nicely and I thought all of the the overall approach to Ravel was uh, how can I say unhurried tempos the yes. music un, the music uh, unfolds as it should uh, so that you get a natural presentation uh, especially in the waltzes that flow one to another I liked the uh, bolero I thought it was well well paced it it was unhurried, and uh, even the finish uh, yeah. comes out I, just as a I natural statement. I generally dread having to hear that piece, but I did like yeah, it Yeah, I liked it here. And I, like yeah. I said, the, I got a kick out of the sax and trombone uh, in there. Yeah. Um, I, I liked all of these a lot. Uh, like you say, the, there's other com performances to compare to, like the Dutois. But here, the sonic delights and uh, just the overall presentation... Uh, we'll make this a winner. Uh, put this on your best uh, sound system. Yeah. Your, you know, your best listening time, uh, just to get the, you know, relax the, the best into your sound and, bath. Uh, yeah, sound bath and any audio files. <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of the better recordings I've heard so far this year. Uh, you're going to really get uh, a treat with this one. So yeah, check it out. Okay, and there it is for classical music for this week, the beginning of April. Nice start to spring. Yeah, Bolero. Yeah. We'll get We're those, doing okay uh, so far for spring. We yeah. had the Ranitsky, and then we had the... Uh, there was one from last week, too, that was really great. I don't remember. Anyway. Get the Hunt, and yeah, you get your 
bolero, your juices flowing for spring. <laughs> and uh, well, we're going to take you over to the funky side this week. Uh, because, oh, yeah. We uh, were funky in jazz this week, weren't we? It's organ time. Um, my organ list <laughs> is bursting. That, that's that's what I say to my girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a really long list of uh, recordings. It's up to like 25 pages now. But the organ category is growing. I actually added another one I would have included this week that just came out, uh, or I just became aware of today, that came out on April 1st, which was too late to make this week's deadline. And there's another one that I didn't include just because I thought... I had to pick and choose. Uh, so there's uh, the new uh, Smoke Sessions records, uh, Larry Goldings and Peter Bernstein uh, recording. And I almost picked that one. But well, I, we could still do it in the future, right? Yeah, we, well, we could. But, uh, you know, I like yeah. to mix things up on here, especially I like to give uh, new artists uh, who you know may not get noticed right away uh, a mention, as we've done uh on previous episodes and so I thought I'd take a chance with one here and I, I kind of enjoyed it and uh, especially because I like this sort of organ renaissance that's going on uh, in jazz yeah, me too. there's a lot of mm. organs showing up which is a really good thing so here we have a uh, debut recording appropriately titled First Shot and this is on JMS Productions uh, and we don't have an organ trio rather we have an organ quartet uh, but the leader is the guitarist uh, Pierre Manetti uh, French guitarist although it sounds like an Italian last name as do some of the other musicians on here so uh, this is sort of you know uh, kind of pan-European kind of thing maybe uh, but Pierre Manetti is uh, on his debut album here however I does come from a musical family uh, he's the youngest son of a well-known uh, guitarist, uh, Romane Manetti. And his brother, Richard, is also a guitarist. Uh, and he's won a special Young Talent Prize as a guitarist. And this is his uh, debut uh, leader recording after uh, being a sideman and uh, appearing uh, as a musician on other venues and uh, so here we've got his debut which he's decided to do with uh, Hammond organ which uh, was what caught my attention and made it onto my list here so here we've got uh, Minetti on electric guitar Christophe Cravero on organ uh, Laurent Locuratolo on drums so these French kind of Italian sounding uh, names here and uh, yeah, I guess they all went over to the with the Mona Lisa back in yeah, our Da Vinci's be. day. Uh, but uh, so normally we would have a, you know, an organ trio, you know, guitar, organ, drums, uh, and the organ would handle the bass with the bass pedals. But in this case, we've got uh, electric bass, uh, Henri Dorina on electric bass, which gives a kind of unique character uh, to the performances here. So we begin with the title track, First Shot, and sort of the approach here on this tune is uh, dual guitar and organ, uh, 
together on the melody line, uh, which gives reinforcement to that. And right out of the head of the tune, Minetti breaks into a solo, and you'll notice that uh, he has really tight articulation and really rapid playing, uh, rapid phrasing. Uh, this guy's got a lot of technique. Um, and underneath all of it, you'll feel that extra push of the electric bass uh, that gives a little bit more articulation and funky possibilities. Uh, of course, you can play bass pedals on Hammond. Uh, they don't come through and cut through quite as much as the attack on electric bass. So we've got the electric bass here. Uh, a lens, a little different character. A yeah, the, the, the organ bass kind of has an odd sort of cutoff because when you let go of the pedal, you, you, you know, you usually just kind of... Yeah. Let it go and it stops immediately. Yep. That doesn't really happen on a regular bass. Yeah. So there's a little different yeah. kind of possibilities with uh, electric bass versus the pedals. Uh, so the electric bass puts a stamp on this recording sound. Uh, Cravero has an organ solo here. Uh, nice fast lines, uh, good swells on the keyboard. I looked him up. Uh, he's mainly has a reputation as a pianist. Uh, and several recordings of his own, uh, too. But I couldn't find anything else with him on organ. Uh, but he seems to have a good organ concept and uh, stylizations adapted to the instrument. Uh, Locoroturo keeps things tight with cymbals and drum fills here. Uh, they repeat the melody and the whole tune's over kind of quickly, uh, under four minutes uh, for the opener. Track two, appropriately titled Groove, and that's a <laughs> hand-clapping groove uh, here. <laughs> yeah. uh, we get that uh, hand-clapping thing to go in. Um, electric bass adds some popping uh, accents to help that groove out. Minetti takes the choppy melody over some nice swelling organ chords. Uh, the next section has... Uh, organ guitar unison lines, uh, which worked well in the first track. A minute breaks out of it into a solo with a really nice overtone riff uh, into some rapid lines, a little more harmonic exploration on this tune. Cuvero uh, gets a funky solo on organ, repeated notes and uh, tight chords. It's a very funky track. Uh, good feeling. Uh, get your hands clapping on that. Track three, uh, Olivia. This one's got a funky bass groove and a subdivided light drum beat. Uh, the guitar and organ again float a cruising I say this a lot on these organ tunes it's like this, uh, I call it a cruising melody. You know, you get that and so you feel like you're driving along. I have uh, a lot of these odd kind of terms that I use yeah, too. <laughs> like window down you. by the ocean mm -hmm. and you're driving you know, or the top down in a convertible this I, kind I of said this. Feel. I said this groove was tropical actually yeah, tropical mm -hmm. in a convertible driving mm -hmm. along uh, there's a couple other tunes in the recordings uh, tonight that I felt get that kind of feeling, it just works really well with organ uh, there's a descending line that leads to a break and then the groove changes. It's slower and heavier that comes out. Uh, Cravero picks out a well-articulated melody into a flowing solo. Uh, then he adds uh, nice swelling chords uh, that uh, Dorina fills with some, uh, you know, popping bass kind of things. You know, you're not going to get that on the bass pedals of the organ. So the electric bass shows off uh, a bit in here. Uh, Cravero gets some solo time. Uh, that works into holds with drum solo fills and back into the subdivided original melody section. Uh, so the rhythm changes up through the different 
parts of the song, and it slows to the end with some cool guitar fills. Track four is called Opening. It's a kind of dexterous, rapid guitar lines over a slow-moving organ line uh, that make an intro to the tune. It breaks into a melody with another funky groove featuring big downbeat accents on phrases. Uh, Minetti breaks into a solo ripping out rapid melodic lines, and then Cravero's organ solo gets a little Bach fugue in spots. Mm. It sounds somewhat classical there. Uh, they give a taste of the intro and melody again for the ending phrase. Track five is called Sculpture. This has a nice relaxed uh, drum groove with a rim click to it. Funky bass lines and organ chord hits flow under Minetti's rhythmic uh, melody phrases. Uh, melody Minetti gets some nice pitch bend play uh, in his solo before he gets into more rapid uh, ripping lines with lots of speed. And Quivero gets a light and high organ tone for his solo on this one, working into some really fast uh, sextuplet phrases. Uh, They're uh, six to a beat here, uh, kind of impressive. And they get back to the melody groove to the end. Locomotoro gets a lot of nice work on the busy beat uh, in this tune. Track six is called Fugitive Song. You get a drum intro into a different kind of groove here that has lots of breaks. Uh, guitar and organ working together on the melody. Minetti has Disney, dizzying lines in his solo here. Uh, lots of speed. Uh, Corvero's fleet as well, getting some nice distortion in the swelling tone of his organ. And they work back into the melody, leaving uh, Locoraturo with some drum fill spots. Uh, track seven... Le Petit Caillot, I guess that means the little pebble. Right. Uh, probably cool yeah. unless it's in your shoe. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it has a solo guitar intro. Nice organ fade in. <clears throat> Minetti takes the melody first and then Cravero. It gets a little dizzying uh, in all the permutations of it. There's a break mm. and a reset for Minetti to take a solo. And he concentrates on shorter tightly articulated melodic phrases here. Crevero gets an organ solo as well, and Locoratoro has a busy tom rhythm backing throughout the tune. Uh, track eight, Giacomo. Super funky beat on this one. Syncopated and popping bass underneath, swelling yeah, organ. How about that? Yeah. You don't hear the slap bass too much anymore. Not too much, no. Yeah. It goes back to the 90s since we heard that. Uh, yeah. Minetti plays bluesy melody, uh, joined by the organ sometimes, uh, but getting some cool double stops uh, on the guitar. There's a break for the solo, and then Minetti keeps it funky and rhythmic with repeated tones and bluesy riffs. And then it's time for a funky poppin' bass solo. <laughs> yeah. We really get a lot of that in this tune. It's the 90s uh, again, or the 80s, really. <laughs> now, I don't know how you pronounce this in uh, French because we got ambiguité ambiguité so ambiguity ambiguité yes something in between <laughs> hard to define yeah. uh, rapid repeating notes in an organ intro it swells into mysterious minor start for the melody so nice organ and guitar interplay here some tasty light picking from Minetti interesting chord changes make for uh, kind of uh, engaging backing for more speedy runs in Minetti's solo and more of a swelling mood in Cravero's solo. It's an exciting tune and they have some fun with the ending hits on it too. And we hmm. end up with a tune called Red Naomi. Uh, this has an alternating organ chord intro. Minetti carries the likable melody over the 6th 8 rhythm. This is the first time we hear this rhythm on this album, yeah. right? The, it really the stuck out for me. The final melody section of the 
the main melody has a contrasting darker mood that shifts. And then Cravero gets the solo first, but the rhythm sort of changes. The 6-8 sort of evolves into a four-beat feel uh, with the bass moving in quarter notes uh, over the solo section. Uh, Minetti's solo has a lot of fast runs uh, mixed with fluid melodic ideas and then when they come back to the melody it gets, it's got that 6-8 feel again so the 6-8 is relegated to the bookending melody sections whereas the solo sections have uh, more of a 4-beat feel to it so uh, yeah a nice debut release Minetti has super fast chops uh, he's obviously got this in his blood uh, from a musical family I like his fluid concept uh, nice guitar tone uh, the original tunes here have a lot of variety but the focus is on groove uh, which oh, yeah. is, should be to have the organ in there Cravero's organ work is nice too uh, the decision to use electric bass I I guess he wanted to have that kind of more syncopated drive uh, and uh, popping things other than just organ pedals I'd like to hear Cravero on an organ alone and see what his bass uh, pedals add to it. Uh, But yeah, um, overall, as a total thing, I thought it's a nice uh, debut and a guitarist who shows a lot of technique and uh, promise and uh, nice for choosing organs. So yeah, check it out. Yeah, I thought he had a lot of uh, catchy themes in these tracks too. Mm. And it's a a debut album, so this is probably why, but I felt like the solos, they're not really stretched out. They could have been longer. Everything is very compact and the tracks are really short. Red Naomi, the last piece, was my favorite. It was also the most... uh, you know, substantial of all the yeah. tracks because it goes on for a while. Everybody gets a little bit of a chance to stretch out a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that's the only thing. I mean, I guess we'll hear longer solos as it goes on. If they, you just want to make yeah. your mark on your first album, but very appealing. I liked it. Yeah. And I love the organ. He's a he's a good player. Yeah. Nice to hear yeah. the slap bass too. It's good. Like on I say, track. he mm-hmm. got ten tunes out there, and a, a bunch of them are less than four minutes uh, even openings less than three minutes so it's kind of I guess he had these compositions it's all original material he wanted to get them out there he yeah. could have cut back to seven or eight tunes and extended the solos uh, you know yeah Whatever. but even so I mean it's still a short I just it, ten tracks it's still a pretty short album yeah, yeah I think yeah. it comes in at around 40 minutes or so yeah but um, okay. yeah but nice first nice. effort I like that uh, yeah. looking forward to hear what uh, comes next from him me uh, too now uh, building up uh, this is an album I was <laughs> waiting to hear, and uh, oh boy, I really like this one. Uh, we've got uh, Four Brothers on Chicken Coop record label. Oh yeah, where it belongs. Right? Yeah, say. exactly. Uh, and, uh, what was that album by? Back um, to the Chicken Shack. Back yeah. to the Chicken Jimmy Shack. Sh- right? Jimmy Smith. Right. Yeah. Jimmy so here we've got Smith, the right? organ quartet by uh, organist Tony Monaco. Now, uh, Monaco was uh, originally an accordion player from childhood. And uh, he was, but he was influenced by Jimmy Smith uh, when he was young. Uh, he switched over to organ after he heard uh, Jimmy Smith playing, and actually got some uh, mentoring from Smith. Uh, and then later, he made his debut album, uh, collaborating with uh, Joey De Francisco, and it was called uh, "A New Generation Paisanos on the New B3." <laughs> That's what it was called, yeah. Paisanos. Paisanos. Oh my God. <laughs> Paisanos on the new B3, yeah. boy. Hey. All right. Hey. Paisan. <laughs> Where's your Hammond? Uh, and so uh, he began recording uh, from then. And uh, in the 
early 2000s, he got uh, some notoriety also working with uh, the great Pat Martino on guitar. Ah, yes. Um, and so uh, he was also placed high in uh, critic polls, on the, uh, reaching the top five jazz organists from uh, the International Critics Poll 2005 to 2011. And uh, so here, here he is with uh, this new recording, uh, Four do Brothers. The, do you know where the Four Brothers theme comes from? Because he's he uses this title quite a few times on this album. Well, I'm not sure, but that composition is his own original one, but uh, also the Brothers Four which is track yeah. seven. We'll get to it. It's a Don Patterson tune. So oh, I don't okay. know if he just made it because he's got this uh, quartet or what the inspiration is. Yeah, I'm not sure. And they're all brothers in, in jazz or something. Brothers in know. jazz. Uh, so Maybe. on this recording, we've got uh, uh, Tony Monaco, Hammond B3, Willie B. Barthel third on drums, Edwin Baird, tenor and soprano saxophones, Kevin Turner on guitar. So we begin with the title track four brothers uh this one has a snare drum intro into the bluesy bounce of a melody uh monaco and bayard double the cheerful melody line on organ and tenor sax bayard is up first for a very soulful sax solo with a really fat tone on the tenor hmm. turner gets a guitar solo uh turner often plays like the contrast on this album because he has a kind of restrained, centered tone. It's kind of compact. Uh, but that's not to say that he's not super tasty uh, as he is here on his uh, licks. Um, <clears throat> Monaco's solo has a lot of rhythmic variety, uh, melodic energy. Uh, they do a cute little circus change-up of the rhythm at the end of the melody, and they repeat that and finish with a drum fill and an interesting tritone interval ending. Uh, it's a fun little romp to start out the album. Track two, another mm. Tony Monaco original, You Can Always Count On Me. Uh, guitar and organ set the stage for this one from the intro. It's got that, again, cruising groove. <laughs> like, yeah. get the there top. There are a lot of those on this one, Yeah, I think. the windows down. You're going to drive along the parkway. Uh, got your shades on. Feels good. McConnell, uh, and, and you're you're driving a giant Cadillac convertible, aren't you? Because this sounds like like something you'd hear on the radio in the 1950s. Really, this album, the whole sound of this. Yeah. This would have sounded really good in a car that I used to drive, which was a 1978 <laughs> Cadillac Coupe de Ville. You drove a Coupe de Ville? No Coupe way. Coupe de Ville, 78, uh, white with a red uh, vinyl top, white leather interior. And is I that had your dad's to, car or is that yours? No, it's mine. You, you and, had a Cadillac? Uh, yeah, seven liter engine. Did the ladies <laughs> like it? Uh, it's that really a... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, what? Uh, it's like a middle-aged guy's car. Oh, maybe a convertible it was wouldn't a, be. When I had it, it was a classic because... Oh, okay. Yeah. In the 70s. I remember those because my dad yeah, had Cadillacs. I didn't drive it in the 70s. I drove it in uh, the 90s. Anyway. We used to call it the Dadillac. Like, my friends call it the pimp mobile, but uh, yeah, it kind of is that. <laughs> anyway, it had a hundred watt Delco uh, stereo that, in it. You that, know, so that, that thing could so... go over deep potholes and you, you oh, just yeah. wouldn't feel a thing. Go anywhere, yeah. They don't make cars like that anymore. No, 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 no not in a long time. Anyway, yeah. it would have sounded good in that car. Um, anyway, Monaco carries the easy melody with funky little fills on guitar uh, from Turner. Uh, Bayard joins in on soprano sax on this one, which lifts the melody. Uh, up with the uh, 
unique tone of the soprano sax. Monaco really lays down a funky syncopated bass pedal under his solo. Check that out. This guy has mm. some really great uh, footwork. Yeah, it's he's like, got good footwork. Yeah, yeah. Like I noticed dancer, that myself. He really draws out those keyboards. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uses a clean organ tone for the start of his solo that is relaxed and measured out until he kicks up the whirl of that Leslie speaker for a climax. Uh, Bayard has an easily swinging soprano solo with some cool riffs, and Turner finishes up with a clearly articulated but flowing guitar solo. After more melody, they riff out for some drum work from Bartel as it fades away. Now, huh. track three, this is one of the highlights of the album, uh, Mas Que Nada, the Jorge Benjor tune, uh, which everyone will know from Sergio Mendes, uh, Sergio Mendes, uh, da, 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 da. <laughs> Everyone knows that, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is a really infused version of that. This is a super high energy. Um, uh, it's got a sax intro, organ stop time uh, into that famous melody, which uh, Barthel drives along with a really nice drumming. The cymbal work on it is really good. Drives it along. Bayard works the main melody on a fat tenor as this works great on sax you know that vocalization that you're used to comes out on tenor he hands it off to Monaco on the middle section uh, then back to Bayard who blows a gutsy tenor solo gets up into the high register uh, Monaco has some really nice bluesy licks and chords that he holds way up high while he works underneath uh, for some uh, soloing under the hold chords uh, very cool solo Turner's guitar solo is bluesy and fluid. And Bartel gets some drum solo time working the toms a lot over Monaco's vamping chords before they power back in with the melody uh, repeating the tag for a bit at the end. It's a great arrangement mm. of uh, this familiar melody. Yeah, really exciting too. Yeah. Uh, track four, Jan uh, Jan uh, by Mose Davis. Uh, this one <laughs> starts with a funky organ one chord uh, organ and guitar groove. Uh, the melody is a series of tight unison guitar and organ licks. Uh, the second section is sequences of ascending chords. Check out Monaco's funky footwork again on the bass lines here. Uh, really, really throughout the album. He's, yeah. yeah, he's always, man. Yeah, really works his feet. Uh, Monaco's solo here is super funky, harmonically adventurous, dancing in and out of the chords with some nasty dissonance in spots that sounds great. <laughs> uh, Bayard bursts in for a tenor solo, and the beat breaks into a fast swing. Uh, he really wails on a long high note and aggressive phrases. They hit the building chords for a transition between solos. Uh, Turner gets really jazzy out in the chord extensions before tying back in with some bluesy licks. On the melody repeat, they uh, go over the ascending chords for a bit to give Bartel some drum uh, solo fun as well. Track five, One for Everyone. This is uh, the guitarist's original tune, Kevin Turner. This is a real happy sounding bluesy tune with a shuffling beat. Uh, organ and guitar share the melody in unison. Turner solos first, lots of tasty bluesy licks and sweet bends. Uh, Bayard is more relaxed on tenor here, swinging along uh, easily in his solo. Monaco is bouncy and bluesy, building tension with repeated figures, which climax in big pounding chords up in the higher oh. register. They go around the melody again, and it all ends with a nice sax wail. Uh, then we've got a change of pace, a really nice one at that. Uh, Billy Strayhorn's Lush Life, track six. 
uh, rubato tenor sax and organ intro to this standard. Uh, Monaco swells it underneath, gets the Leslie going in the second section, which really whips things up, that change of uh, tonality, uh, getting uh, the kind of vibrato vibration that the Leslie gets. Really nice organ vibrations going on to everything here. Barthel slips in with some brushwork uh, once they get going and Turner with little guitar fills. Bayard sticks close to the melody uh, most of the way through the tune, getting a little solo space towards the end while Monaco finds just the right tones and textures for support on the organ. Uh, just a nice, relatively straight uh, playthrough, but a nice arrangement. Track seven, Brothers Four, uh, Don Patterson tune, big beat drum intro. Bayard switches to soprano here, and the organ and sax work the repeating riff together over this 12-bar blues. Uh, the beat breaks into more of a swing with ride cymbals for Monaco solo, which is very bluesy and tight. They switch up the beat uh, to the original syncopated feel of the melody for Bayard's soprano solo. He gets more out there with harmonic ideas, uh, but ends up on a repeated kind of pentatonic riff and articulated bluesy lines. Then it's back to swing for Turner's guitar solo that has lots of rhythmic tension and bluesy licks. After the melody uh, comes back again, it fades out with some soft sax doodling. Mm. Track nine, Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer's My Shining Hour, or track eight rather, uh, Monaco cranks up anticipation with a syncopated chord intro over swinging cymbals. Bayard blows the melody on tenor with a big muscular sound. After a quick solo break, he blows into his solo with a lot of drive and hard-swinging phrases. Monaco works a lot of nice melodic ideas and tight chords while keeping a hard-driving walking bass line on the pedals beneath. He explodes. I think we got that from uh, Mike Ledone. Exploded. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he likes, he ex- likes that word. He yeah. explodes into a climax in the upper register. You know, just that bursting organ with some hammering percussive chords. Uh, Turner brings back the cool with his flowing guitar solo. They trade up yeah, eight he bar. Does, he does that throughout the album. He he yeah. he likes that being that cool kind of low key sort yep. of. Uh, he's always changing the uh, the feel. I think that's just yep. his style. I guess. Yeah, I really like it. Uh, uh, Turner brings back the cool with the solo, and they trade off eight bar phrases with sax, organ, and guitar for a time around. Uh, the form, giving the drums some solo spots, and Bayard comes back to take the melody out uh, for some more improvisation, blowing it hard to the end and getting a static kind of Pharaoh Sanders-like crying uh, on the sax at the end. And track nine uh, is called Four Brothers Two, T-O-O, exclamation point. What you've got here is just an alternate take of the uh-huh. uh, title track. It's almost the same exact length, same arrangement, but you got different solos. Uh, so you can hear, see here, you know, in the jazz process, uh, what happens in the studio. You start with an arrangement and you got to take, and then they'll often do several of those and uh, compare, you know, what happened in it, you know, which one has the best solos overall, and they'll choose it. And oftentimes, if you get lucky, there's another take, that they may like just as much for different reasons. So uh, check it out here and uh, compare the solos. You can see, you know, different uh, feelings, improvisations, what was going on in their minds at the time. 
this one's enjoyable too yeah. Uh, so yeah great album I love the arrangements uh, Monaco's playing uh, it's really he captures the intensity and uh, fervor of jazz organ well I think he gets a lot of tonal variety he knows which stops to use to get the best tone uh, at, you know really effective use of the Leslie and I have to say that his uh, bass pedal work is very impressive some of the yeah, best I I've heard so too. Yeah. Um, and then I, I like um the sax here. Soprano's a nice touch too, but uh, Bayard's tenor is really muscular and adds an edge uh, and aggressiveness to the playing. Uh, the whole ensemble's good. Turner's guitar adds a sort of soft, kind of uh, laid back, uh, nice extra character to it. Uh, good choice of tunes. Yeah, I re- I, this is a great album for organ jazz. Uh, yeah, it pretty much it's either if it's not swinging, it's being funky. You know, yeah. it's, it's a fun, fun, fun record. I liked it a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I I also mentioned the footwork from the organist. It really kind of steps out. Usually, it's not something you usually listen, but he's just so impressive that you kind of yeah. you couldn't help but going in there. And also the uh, the 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 sounds of the guitar had this kind of like holly body hollow yeah. body electric sound Straight really something tone. from the past I think it was kind of I wonder what it says about us that we like this and I and the next album too that we're going to talk mm. about because they really are both kind of throwbacks to like the 60s and 50s yep. when things were a lot different and yeah. uh, you know maybe simple but still um, um, what would you say um, being played by people let's right, say right, you yeah. know? organic yeah Organic, yeah. maybe, yeah. So no I, I got that from this one and from the album that's next. Yeah. What would that be? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is the one I've been holding, uh, sort of, <laughs> this has been on hold, waiting to get enough other organ releases, and then they sort of just oh, yeah. poured out. But This uh, one, I have to say, I've ordered this when it came out, because I remember last year's mm. uh, Delvon Lamar record, and uh, it still hasn't arrived oh, on CD. That's horrible. <laughs> I had to yeah. hear it on Deezer, but that's cool, you know. So we've got uh, as the uh, final uh, climactic recording, one that I was waiting to come out because uh, the re- his recording last year, I told you so, made our best of the year. And yeah, we liked it a lot. The, the uh, funky bass. Yeah. Delvon Lamar organ trio, their new recording, Cold as Weiss. That's W-E-I-S-S, yeah. which is the name of the uh, drummer. Uh, celebrating his permanence into the ensemble. This is on Coal Mine Records. This came out back in February, but I've been sitting on it to save for an all-organ uh, program. Now, Lamar is... Well, uh, it's, it's only a month later, really. <laughs> well, yeah, really, I guess. But yeah. I try to get things out uh, soon when I can. Huh? Wait, till, wait till August. <laughs> <laughs> Lamar's a Seattle-based uh, Hammond B3 organist, uh, but he's got an interesting musical background. Um, I like... Um, all music's uh, description of his music. This is not quoting them. I won't take credit credit for this, but uh, their style is drenched in gritty, greasy, vintage soul jazz, funk, and R and B, and buoyed by canny improvisation. So gritty, greasy is what you're going to get yeah, here. And put put on your bathing suit for that guitar reverb. Yeah, that you're yeah, too. It's great. <laughs> um, so the. Uh, they started with a recording in 2006, Close But No Cigar. Uh, that's a great one. And uh, then they had a live recording, at Live at KEXP 2018. Uh, and you can see some videos from that on YouTube, I think. And then uh, last year, 
uh, I Told You So, which uh, made our end of the year uh, best of recordings. And here they are with uh, Cold As Weiss. And this celebrates uh, the new drummer, uh, Dan Weiss, as a permanent member in the band. Although he did also uh, perform on uh, last year's recording uh, as well, but he was they were sort of shifting personnel. And I think uh, if you see some of the YouTube videos of their live performances, they've got a different drummer, uh, David McGraw. Uh, anyway, Weiss is... Uh, become a permanent member here of this trio, which is uh, Delvon Lamar on organ, uh, the great Jimmy James on guitar, and now Dan Weiss on drums. And, um, well, <laughs> it's hard to really explain what... <laughs> talking about this is kind of frustrating because uh, this is distilled a kind of organ music that uh, takes on uh, this soul jazz funk R&B that's all about the groove right, right? Uh, there are there is improvisation going on here but the most important thing is the tight interlocking of the rhythmic feel which cannot be replicated duplicated in any electronic way uh, actually reading some interviews uh, from uh, about their recording process in the band is uh, they don't even use headphones in the studio. Uh, they go in and have to record everything as live and organic as possible. And they just take the takes as is. There's no overdubbing, correcting warts and all, because the most important them. thing is that natural interlocking of the rhythms. And so that's why they need a special kind of drummer here. And Weiss is a great drummer. Uh, actually, the previous drummer, McGraw, was great too. These are real deep in the pocket drummers there's nothing right. fancy going on here it's all rock solid deeply integrated uh rhythm that's the core of what's happening here so, so i'm guessing that all means there's no auto tune on this album there's no auto tune uh, i don't think they're using there's any, no auto tune uh, in the same building that there's no metronomes <laughs> there's no recorrecting of the rhythm uh this is just as it happens uh so you've got this incredible funkiness of rhythm and you've got one of the dirtiest sounding guitar uh, sounds yeah. of all time in the greatest way uh, Jimmy James uh, this guy just gets the most funkiest uh, and dirty sounds out of guitar and he's a master of simplicity uh, using repeated lines uh, simple ideas over with just slight alterations uh, pitch bends uh, to create yeah, a real stew of wonderful sounds that uh, you just can't help but love. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, it's uh, almost like what uh, popular music should be, or maybe yeah. was at one and, time. And I you think know? The, the great thing about mm -hmm. this music, it's going to have, you know, rhythm is infectious. If, if you play in a band or something, you know, like, you know, I play right. in, in a band and have played in different, you know, kinds of ensembles, all styles of music. When you're going to play in a live venue, when you may be competing with background noise or other kinds of things. There's two things that catch listeners' attention, uh, rhythm and harmony. Uh, if you can get harmonized voices on something, you'll get people to listen. But even more basic than that is some sort of infectious rhythm. If you got a beat that has something interesting or infectious, it's going to get people listening and moving. And, uh, 
the Del Lamar organ trio has that infectious rhythmic quality. I think it, so it has a large appeal to different uh, audiences of all ages and uh, backgrounds. Uh, you're going to get drawn into this music. Yeah, if you if people would only listen to it, we got to get yeah. them listening to well, it. Yeah, yeah, they're doing pretty well, I think, uh, especially. Yeah. I think seeing this group live, I've seen, you know, only videos of their live performances, but uh, you should definitely, if you have the opportunity to see them play somewhere, check it out. Now, a lot of the the um, songwriting credits are interesting. So they're credited to Daryl Dumas, which I think is Delvon Lamar's real name, uh, I, I think. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, Dan Weiss, the drummer, and then Jane Williams, who I'm not sure who is uh who that is but i do know that uh uh devon lamar's wife is the manager of the group because he wasn't interested in uh dealing with uh that part of the production yeah. well uh, who is i mean if yeah. you're playing that's a lot of work <laughs> tell me about it <laughs> you know? yeah anyway he has a interesting musical background uh let's see he started out in junior high school playing drums uh and then he later taught himself to play guitar then he started playing trumpet, and then after that, he uh, learned to play also flute, clarinet, trombone, and tuba, but kept up his drum work. Uh, later, he uh, was involved with uh, other people playing uh, organ, and he decided to uh, focus on that, and so he liked that so much, he focused and continued on that. So he's a multi-instrumentalist, uh, seems to be able to create whatever he wants on different instruments, but I'm glad He's chosen the Hammond B3 because uh, this is just great music that you're bound to love. Uh, the only problem with this recording, and you'll find this in any reviews that you look at, is it's rather short and yeah. it leaves you wanting more. But that's never a bad thing uh, to not wear out your yeah. welcome. Uh, so we start out with uh, an original by uh, the band. Uh, what These credits for all the originals are Dumas, Weiss, and Williams. So pull your pants up. <laughs> oh, like an old man. Uh, this starts out with a great Jimmy James dirty riff uh, into a descending organ line melody and a contrasting descending organ chord section in there as well. Very animated and funky organ solo by Lamar on this one to get you warmed up into the album. It, I can't really, you know, as I said, it's all about grooves. So each groove is a little bit different, unique rhythm, uh, pace to it. Uh, it's all about the groove, so you've really got to listen to it. Uh, track two, Don't Worry About What I Do. Again, original tune. Uh, this one has a little slower groove, a very gnarly, gnarly, like, think tendons and bone visible uh, descending <laughs> guitar melody line with spaced out notes. Uh, James gets solo longer on this one. He bends the notes until they almost rip apart. He's a master of repeating phrases and just slightly alternating them or alternating yeah. them. He has the a solo nice... was a bit of like a psychedelic funk yeah. sort of yeah. thing. It had this kind of weird it's effect. A, which you know, ends with a really nice descending glissy run. It's so dirty right. you'll need a shower or at least a wipe yeah. at the end of listening to this. Too. <laughs> a wipe. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Mark keeps uh, rocking the chords, pumping underneath, and Weiss keeps the beat deep in the pocket. Uh, track three... Uh, this one is uh, tuned by uh, Arthur, T-Boy Ross, and Leon Ware. This is a Michael Jackson tune from 1972. Um, and I think uh, last year they had big success. They did a, a cover by, of uh, Wham's Careless Whisper on oh. I Told You So. 
uh, which turned out to be a well-requested song. That was one of the things that we uh, kind of picked up on, I think, on right. that album in, in calling it our album of the year. I thought it was a, yeah. it was a really bold choice of two. Really interesting. Um, yeah. So I think they're incorporating that idea of having a, at least one cover uh, that might be known here. Uh, this one starts out with an alternating chord riff. Lamar takes the melody. He keeps the tone very high and straight. Uh, there's no Leslie or... Uh, vibration going on in the tone. Uh, James has a tasty rhythmic uh, strumming underneath, and Weiss mixes up the beat with rim clicks and big hits. Uh, we get a modulation halfway through the tune uh, to lift it to the end. Uh, track four, <laughs> original tune, Big Titi's Blues, and that is uh, capital T, capital T, apostrophe S. Uh, nice title. I who he is. Yeah. Or she. <laughs> she. Uh, yeah, this is a very bluesy track, though. Dirty, dirty. I wrote it twice. Tone, nasty reverby guitar riff from James. Uh, it's yeah, a true, reverby. Yeah. It's I a true, reverb soaked, you know? Yes, yeah, soaked. Bring it's a towel. A, <laughs> it's a true slow 12 bar blues. Yeah, bring this to the TT bar. Thick uh, <laughs> 60s Chicago blues style. Um, you know, Junior Wells, that kind of thing. Uh, they go around the simple melody twice. Lamar is up for an organ solo. He creates anticipation with lots of space, uh, gets in lots of trills, keeping it all bluesy. James is all filthy blues as well. Lots of bent notes and beautiful simplicity. Uh, lots of fun at the TT Blues Bar. At the TT Blues Bar. Well, <laughs> Track five, yeah. uh, Get Da Steppin'. And this yeah. one is just a uh, credit to Daryl Dumas, so Devon Lamar. Interesting bass organ riff with a skip in it. Uh, it's got this little skip in the rhythm uh, that opens it up. A tight rhythm from James and drums. It lays down on one chord for a long time, but it has a couple of chord shifts and a little four-chord turnaround sequence that breaks it up. The organ solo here is hypnotic and rhythmic to match the beat, and Lamar gets the Leslie speaker swirling to whip it up uh, and add some excitement. Track six, Uncertainty. Uh, this is, again, credited to the three names. Drum intro to a cruising groove. There's that cruising groove idea again. It's a little bit lighter driving along in your Coupe de Ville. <laughs> <laughs> Lamar has in some, York, in York, yeah, my Coupe de Ville. Oh God, I love that car. I should, I should have never sold it. Uh, Lamar has some different stops pulled out for a real '70s sound on the organ. Uh, James carries the melody with tasty little guitar lines. The hook for the song are occasional syncopated pickup notes, dun dun dun, into the phrase, and then it has these sixteenth note repeated note breaks with the drums, like. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, right out of the late 60s, early 70s. So I was um, thinking like those, some of those pop tunes, like something Lionel Richie like about them with the spinners or you know, one yeah. of those bands. Yeah, I had that yeah. type of groove, only slow in this case. Yeah. It was pretty chilled out. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Da, 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 da. It's all, this yeah. album's all about the groove. That that's what it goes to, and then it gets a. This tune also has a uh, lifting modulation uh, for the last time through at the ending of the song, so it just floats you on through. Uh, seven, keep on keeping on. Albert Norvo tune. Uh, it's a bass pedal and organ chord riff joined by funky guitar 
in an ascending riff. Lamar takes the melody on the organ and some interesting descending bass and then lifting chord changes after you get settled into that one chord groove. So you sort of think you're going to be laying on that chord. It's a, the bass descends. It's not really clear the chords are moving with it, but then they lift through these changes um, from there. Tasty restrained organ solo by Lamar here and a nice unison locked in repeated ascending riffs to the end. Uh, track eight, another uh, band original to the three names, Slip and Slide. Uh, drums and ascending chords that get broken up on a repeat uh, in the intro, uh, just so you don't think it's going to be the same thing through the whole tune. Uh, this one has a different kind of groove. It's kind of like a happy gospel dance, but it changes to minor section a bit before going through this uplifting cycle of chords. Uh, there's a nice kind of call and response answering of the guitar of the organ lines in the guitar phrases, and then they trade off for sections between the instruments. Uh, so yeah, a little bit different arrangement that's nice. Yeah, this particular track was too short. It really yeah. is like two it's and like, a half minutes long. This could have easily yeah. been double the length. It would, you wouldn't have gotten tired. It's really tired. over before you begin. Yeah. And we end with uh, another credit to the three same names, Dumas Weiss Williams. This is Who I Is. Super, super funky 70s TV theme feel here. Saving the funkiest for last. Yeah. TV, TV theme. <laughs> tight Wawa muted uh, rhythm chords on guitar by James. There's a jazzy chord progression on the organ, which breaks up this sort of uh, kind of static uh, feel to it, uh, where James adds some crazy guitar licks. Uh, James gets a funky guitar solo with tasty effects. They really make you want to grow your sideburns. If you listen to this in the morning, you won't <laughs> you won't shave up all the way to your ears. So just get going down. Oh um, my! And then it riffs out on the rising chords uh, from that uh, section at the end with some more tasty James guitar. You know what? I've decided this should be in a Tarantino movie soundtrack. Or yeah, so yeah. or somebody who wants to. Yeah. start making movies don't like, go back to you know, the 70s the and get some washed up old thing use this new music uh yeah they, that's those 70s there. guys don't need any more money so yeah. come on these guys do yeah. it. i mean this this is so you know this is so good um you, with this recording you get more of the same but it's just what you want it's like when you go to your favorite greasy diner and, you know, you usually get the meatloaf sandwich, but today is the sausage sandwich, and you get that, and you say, oh, why haven't I ordered this one before? Or in well, Japan here, I go to my local yakitori shop. You know, you can fit just a few people in. It's all greasy. It's smoky. It's yeah. just dirty enough, but I love it, and I go back there. I taste what is good it about those pe places that people like so much? You got to stand up by the bar. I don't like... I want to uh, sit down. Where I, I go, know. you can sit down. Where well, you have to come oh, you sometime. can sit down at that place? Yeah, well, let's, go go there. There. let's go yeah. there sometime, and then we'll talk about it on the podcast. Okay. Uh, anyway. I, I've the, been to plenty of yeah, places, yeah. though. The, you know... Yeah, this is the one we always really bring guests one. to downtown. We got to... If any, if any of our uh, musical guests want to visit us, we'll bring them to... Uh, yeah. What, what is that? The one on... I can't even remember the name of the street now. <laughs> I know all I the good ones. it's still there. I'll take it to my favorite ones because I'm okay. a connoisseur. You're anyway, a connoisseur that's what you get I here. Know. Greasy, smoky, bacon grease. Uh, oh boy, it's, this is really good. It's all about the rhythms that lock in. Uh, I think that they've hit on upon a great concept. They're getting back this grooved music with, you know, 
in the pocket rhythms, no drum machine. Uh, it's all organic and that great Hammond sound. Jimmy James is a stellar uh, guitarist who just pulls out the, the most, you know, simplest emotional kind of uh, feel on guitar. He never tries to uh, be fancy. He's just super funky and great tone, uh, great use of time and bends. And uh, Weiss uh, fits into this as the permanent drummer of the ensemble uh, perfectly. So, uh, yeah, just great, enjoyable. Uh, it's great to see organ recordings just popping out one after the other. And uh, there's some really good ones here. I'm going to keep adding to my list, and we'll get another organ episode in uh, when I've got another list. So, Well, I, for one, am looking forward to that. Yeah, this yeah. one was great, too. I, uh, I I still have this idea that I liked last year's better than this, I guess because of Careless Whisper, and it was just surprising that way. Mm. But this was, like, super funky, and I think I'm going to, you know, dig it more as I hear it more. Yeah, well, it's uh, a fast follow-up, mm. too. I mean... Yeah, you know, there's that, too. And, popping it right out there. So um, right. I guess how they write these, you know, they're just based on jams and then when they get a good groove they say okay right. we're going to use that and let's lay it down fresh and uh, so you get that kind of new freshness to the you know all of their tunes uh, you know they've just birthed into existence and uh, they're going to record it so hmm. I guess that with the Karis Whisper he was just doodling with it as a joke and then yeah. someone said to him uh, you know Hey, yeah, you should do that. And he's like, no, 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 you should do that. So they, oh, they tried it, and the crowd went wild. So uh, as they like would, they, they, it's, anything familiar yeah. is going to do that to a crowd. If you can get, work yeah. out a good arrangement, you're and okay. then they had that great tune from yeah. the last time that was just this thing they were working on, and someone put a post-it note on his organ, and it said, "Call your mom." <laughs> what do you? What's this tune called? And he said, uh, "I don't know." Call your mom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, why not? So it's that's a good what title. they called it. You know. So I mean, it has that kind of you know just spontaneous nature to it so that's really cool yeah okay so, so there you have it organ uh, a funk organ explosion this week bolero to get your juices flowing and then yeah. your funky big TT's blues and organ to uh, you know and let's face it it's going. always organ time after you hear Ravel yeah <laughs> God, that's right yeah. All, All right. right. We what we better we... end this before my my nose Your just kind of you know. I got I got a I got a runny nose now. What do we got next week? Any uh, hints? I haven't even checked. There's a lot okay. of. I have I actually have stuff now, which is nice. But uh, I got to look through this and see. Whatever it is, it'll be great. Maybe. <laughs> All right. I'm I'm going to decide because uh, I've had uh, one other part of my list which I neglect often, which is vocals, and I know you like jazz oh, wow. vocals. Oh, you so, know. I know what you're going to say. I don't want to steal your fire here, but no, no, it's tell, okay. tell us because uh, I know what you're so, going to say. You know, one of this my, is one I'm anticipating. My too. favorite vocalist, Catherine Russell. Yeah, I like moment, her a lot too. Uh, who has just been bringing out all of this great, uh, you know, she's got her niche with these yeah. old style songs and her new album just came out on April 1st. And I've got a bunch of other recordings that I've got earmarked. Uh, I've got more than enough. So I think I'm going to bust out a uh, jazz vocals, uh, female vocals addition for next week and uh, get some of those out yeah especially Catherine Russell she's a big favorite of the adult music podcast yeah, yeah just yeah. guaranteed to put a smile on your face and she does a lot of these really old kind of obscure oh, yeah, sort of uh, jazz yeah 
songs and I just love those, you know. Yeah, and she's got a band uh both in a small ensemble and big ensemble that really understands that you know period of music and so they get that you know Harlem kind of sound from those old tunes. And there's one tune on the new album that uh has like there's two tunes I think with banjo and tuba in the bass. You know, so huh. You get to hear some tuba on a recording. That's really cool, too. So tuba. We'll be checking that out, along with a couple other female vocalists that uh, caught my ear in uh, this year so far. So that's what we'll be getting in there. Yeah, I think I might go for some uh, pretty mainstream stuff next week, because you know, we don't do enough of that, really. And uh, yeah. that's what I got. Okay. So we'll see. I don't know. I got to gotta think about this a little bit. There's a pretty spectacular... Uh, Recording of Mendelssohn Violin Sonata is out by Alina Ibrahimova and uh, Cedric Tabergian that mm. on Hyperion though, so <laughs> okay. sorry, wouldn't be uh. able to hear it. But that's a I was listening to it the other night. I was like, oh, this is really great. We should it's it's a fantastic uh, performance. Maybe we'll do that. All right. There's a new uh, I don't know if I want to do this. There's a Chopin album by Ivo Pogorelich, and this is like a major release because he hasn't recorded mm. anything in like 20 years. And it, I haven't heard it yet. You never know with him. It might be weird. It might be spectacular. <laughs> we just don't right. know. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll try that and see what we thought about it on the show. That could be good. All right. Well, lots of good things to come. So please uh, look forward uh, to future episodes. At least we'll get some jazz vocals next week and some uh, maybe other mainstream things in the classical category uh until next week this has been episode 57 of adult music the podcast with music for the mature mind uh once again please do follow us on whatever platform or app you listen to us on uh like and subscribe uh please leave a comment uh on whatever platform you listen to us on that helps us get more listeners if you want to contact us directly check us out on facebook adult music podcast find our page you can send us a message there or contact us by email adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com thanks again to fast signs of staten island for our wonderful logo and see you again next week episode next week we'll, we'll just be here i don't know that's right with six new recordings till until then Please keep listening, and we'll see you again next time.